Hello, and welcome to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 694. My name is Jim McDowell. With me tonight, as always, Rich Jowett from the UK. Rich, are you doing okay tonight? I'm doing very well, thank you, Jim. Been very much looking forward to this show where we're talking about 2023 rider lineup. So, yeah, looking forward to getting into this. Yeah, it's the much talked about, the much much maligned, the much crazy 2023 rider lineup and some other good stuff too. But uh, first, let us thank the donors this week who have come in. Alan Fleming, his continued support has been excellent. Thank you, Alan, for that. Remember, you guys can become a supporter of the show as well just by going to our website, www.motopodcast.com. There are buttons on the left-hand side, and you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month. Even if you don't subscribe to the show, if you like the show, please go over to iTunes, give us a rating. The rating algorithm changes and puts us back on top if we get a good review. That way more people find us and more people can enjoy what you already know is a good podcast. With that, this show is the 2023 MotoGP Grid, but we also have a really cool interview that will be on after Rich and I discuss where we think everybody's going to be on the grid. It is about a book, and the book is called the science of the racer's brain and it it's a fascinating read um we talked to the authors auto lappy and alan dove in that interview we'll talk about that a little bit more in here but let us go first to the news and discuss what little we know from this week so i'll start off with moto gp news rich mm-hmm. came out today the finnish gp has been canceled due to geopolitical and homologation reasons so I think we all kind of get what's going on in Europe with the Ukraine, Russia, their stance against people in NATO. Uh, I think the Finnish people have decided they kind of want to become part of NATO, I think is the last thing I read. Yep. They share a border. Uh, you know, I think everything there is a little bit tense. It's keeping that as in turn has kept the track from finishing the work that was required to reach the FIM grade level one requirements. So the best thing to do was to postpone slash cancel the race until 2023. I was looking forward to going back to seeing the race from there. It's sad, but I do understand the reasonings behind it all. Yeah, I mean, it's delayed, not canceled, you know, indefinitely. That's the main thing. Uh, Being slightly cynical conspiracy theorist, I think possibly the situation, the, the terrible situation, it must be said, you know, going on in Eastern Europe at the moment. It's probably a little bit of a useful cover for what I understand was the track being quite far behind schedule anyway. Probably that was more of a COVID-related thing. So I don't think this is an enormous surprise. I'd certainly heard a few podcasts lately where people were speculating that it was quite likely that the work wasn't far enough along and wouldn't get finished in time. So I don't think this is a big surprise, but uh, something to look forward to next year. Definitely. I will give you a little bit of Moto American news here mainly due to the fact that Danilo Petrucci has been on a rant for a few weeks about Moto America. Yeah, so basically in a nutshell, they were at Road Atlanta. The track suffered some sort of power outage that caused a delay in the race because they had to recover from the power outage to be able to get all the live timing and scoring and the television equipment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, back online. Once they got it back online, they started the race, to which Petrucci then had a problem with his Penegale, and then he went on a rant complaining about the organization having caused the problem with his motorcycle because there was a delay, Mm. which I'm like, I'm not too sure how those two things are kind of connected to one another, 
but it has started quite, it did create quite the Twitter storm about who was right, who was wrong. Well, fast forward to this past weekend, Moto America is running at VIR in Virginia. Now, if you've never seen that track, it has a very long front straightaway, which has a very wickedly fast right-handed dog leg in it before it goes down into a, uh, basically a tight hairpin. At the end of the race, Petrucci lost control of his Pentagale and crashed on that very fast straightaway, slid across the track into the sponsor signs that were there, and then proceeded to lay there for a little bit, got up in a reasonable amount of time, and then as all the bikes then finished, because this, this happened as he was going to the checkered flag, medical teams and whatnot came to him. They walked back across the track. He went to the medical center, thought all was good. Petrucci then posted on his Twitter account pictures of a very burned buttocks, if you will, kind of that area from where yep. he slid across everything. He then stated that he had fallen off at probably the highest speed he's ever fallen off before in his life, slid into a sign, which hurt, then said that he laid there and no one came to his aid. As I heard motorcycles whizzing by, I figured I should get up and he did. To which point then he said, I watched as everybody continued to go by again, unaided. And this is paraphrasing here. It was basically terrible and it implied that Moto America needs to get its act together. To which Wayne Rainey then spoke up and said, hey, yeah, you did crash at a high speed, but you fell off at one of the places where there is the most runoff of any of the tracks that we go to, which is true. That is a true statement by Wayne. I will give him that. He then, then Wayne stated that while we did what we believed to be the proper etiquette, we displayed yellow, waving yellow flags for the crash zone, Riders were finishing. It was seven seconds after the notice of the flag going out that Petrucci then stood up, which is not a long time. You know, uh -huh. seven seconds it might feel like an eternity as you being on the ground, but it, that that is not a long amount of time. And certainly you couldn't get people going to that side of the track in seven seconds. Like, you know, unless maybe the bike was on fire, you may have gotten a marshal to grab a fire extinguisher and, and maybe dodge traffic trying to get across a live racetrack with many people coming. But by the time 27 seconds had passed or 27 or 20 seconds after Petrucci had stood up, people were dispatched across the track to get to him to deliver aid and whatnot. And at the end of it, basically, Rainey said to the, to, to the effect that, yeah, we should have probably gotten to you a little bit sooner. But first and foremost, our priority is the safety of our riders, the safety of our staff that is there, corner workers, medical people, et cetera, that need to be thought about as well. And we are going to look at reviewing our procedures. To which there was some people that on Twitter, I will not name names, called Petrucci a, Petrucci a, uh, oh, I lost the word that was used. Probably uh, just as well. Prima Donna. Prima <laughs> okay. Donna is the word. You know, that he's a prima Donna. There were people who replied back. Notable people that I, you all would know who retweeted back, like calling Petrucci a prima Donna is a joke. And it went back, forth, back, forth, back, forth. I, I, I've seen it. Uh, how would I go here? The, the U.S. tracks are not FIM world-level tracks. Coda is, okay? And that is yeah. a very different track than what you see here. A lot of people drew the conclusion like, hey, people have fallen off in BSB. I think somebody fell off. Where were they, Richard? Codwell or something this weekend or previous weekend? Somebody fell and went to a barrier. They got right back up. They were at Donington this weekend, yeah. 
it went back and forth. I get where Petrucci is kind of coming from. You came from a world level championship, which is truly a world level championship. I think we can agree that British Superbikes is not a world level championship. It is a very high caliber national series. Oh, yeah. And I also think that we could agree that Moto America is probably not at the same level that BSB is, but it is the national series here in the United States. And then over here, we are very much concerned about where our race cars go as opposed to where motorcycles go. So we do have a lot of walls and retainments that do make things look a little narrow, but not as narrow as I think is some of the BSB tracks. But I think these are growing pains that Petrucci's seeing. You know, I think if the way I was dumped from a MotoGP ride was a bit unceremonious. And I think I'd have a little bit of bitterness towards going to America to race. I don't know how you feel about it, Rich, but I just think... I, it's a funny one, really. It's hard to really know quite what to make of it, Jim, if I'm honest. I mean, I'm sure like a lot of people, I was really rather flabbergasted that he didn't go to World Superbike, which is the natural kind of retirement home for, you know, fading or, you know, excluded MotoGP stars without being uh, impolite to uh, World Superbike, because it's got its own crop of very, very fast homegrown riders. It doesn't really need people coming across from MotoGP. But it was odd that Petrucci ended up in america my sort of feeling on it is that i mean he's a tough guy we all know that from having watched him in moto gp for many many years and let's not forget he did the dakar last year so this is not a guy who's you know averse to a, a bit of pain and suffering uh toiling away for for his art and for his living you do question a little bit how much research he did on the moto america series before coming because before the whole engine gate thing blew up in Road Atlanta, and he was claiming, I think, that because the the TV signal went down because of the power outage, they were left on the grid kind of waiting for the lights to go red, then green for like 60 seconds or something. So I'm assuming that he thinks that probably did his engine no good whatsoever. Fair enough, maybe that's the case, but... The day prior, in the in the first Superbike race at Road Atlanta on the Saturday, he was moaning and groaning about the quality of the field in terms of back markers getting in the way. I watched that race, albeit the highlights, but it was pretty much all of the race, and I didn't see anybody, you know, impeding him particularly badly. And again, he's rocked up at a national series, a high-level national series, but it ain't MotoGP, and he is going to encounter much slower riders on far inferior equipment to what he's running. I mean, that's the nature of you know, albeit quite high level uh, national racing where you have kind of, let's call them pseudo works teams uh, all the way back to kind of very, very proficient, almost club level riders towards the back of the grid. So, you know, I, I, I kind of understand why he's a bit frustrated, but I question why he went there in the first place, unless it was a money related thing. And then if he's not really made himself aware of what the series was like, before he went there, well, he's only got himself to blame on that one. I wouldn't call him a prima donna, as I say. I mean, he's a, he's a tough nut. If you, anybody that can ride and finish the Dakar deserves massive respect. But in this particular regard, I think he's starting to come across a little bit like a Formula One driver. I agree. Yeah, if, if, your opinion, if you thought all the circuits in America were like Coda, you made a mistake. Yeah. But, and you know, there are similar instances with the uk there was a world superbike rider i'm trying to think of his first name i think it was david giuliano he was a ducati works rider for 
quite some years in World Superbike. And he came across the BSB and he literally lasted two or three rounds uh, and just said, I'm not happy with this. You know, the barriers are way too close. Uh, and he was never seen again. So, I mean, it does happen. This is not unusual. But again, if you do a bit of research and find out where you're going. And I mean, VAR, sorry, VIR, where they were this weekend, just gone, is a magnificent piece of tarmac, isn't it? I mean, it's a beautiful track, but it is quick. But it didn't look particularly dangerous in terms of barriers to me. But then I'm not out there riding 190 miles an hour. So, I mean, it's all about perspective at the end of the day. Very much so. There are I'm sure always- you've raised that, Jim. I never did turn her wheel at VAR. Oh, really? Never have, no, never have. Um, I've always wanted to go see the racing there and plan to probably not this year, probably next year, probably yeah. try to schedule a trip out there to VAR because I, I want to see it out there. Mm. But there are plenty of places that they go to that are way worse than what that is. You know, they're going to go to Road America next here. The weekend after Memorial Day, I believe, here in the U.S., that track is a quick one as well, and it is very much in tune to a race car. There are places where the walls are definitely too close for a motorcycle, in my opinion. I race there as a club, enjoy the track immensely, but kind of putting the Danilo Petrucci hat on, he's going to be like, ooh, why are these things this close when we're doing going this fast? So he's, he's in for a, a rude awakening there as well. I think New Jersey is pretty open as far as not having barriers around um, the race in Pittsburgh. Well, it's not really in Pittsburgh, but it's, out, it's close enough to Pittsburgh is a track. That's a club that has a track and they race there, which I'm sure he's really going to find that one to be <laughs> extremely mm. bad. Um, again, it doesn't really, ha- it's got a couple of them. I've never been there. I'm, I'm planning on going there this year. I'll let you know how close the barriers actually are on that one. So yeah. he's got, you know, it is what it is for that. So I think he's just got to, you know, he just didn't do his homework, right? I mean, I guess the old adage that, you know, there's no such thing as bad publicity might actually be sort of playing a little bit in Moto America's favour on this one, because I think with the best will in the world, it's not been the most high level series in terms of coverage over the last few years. If you look back to the kind of the, the latter glory days of AMA when Nicky Hayden was in there and so on. I mean, that was a big, big series. And it was certainly on TV here in the UK at that time. Now, Moto America is available as part of the Eurosport package that I have a subscription to. And I'm actually following it. I mean, I quite like Moto America anyway, but I certainly have in Petrucci there. And of course, Loris Baz was in the series last year. So there have been some, you know, some top level ex-World Superbike or ex-MotoGP guys coming and going from Moto America, like a lot of the other national series. Um, and it's I certainly would recommend anybody to watch it because the tracks are a bit sketchy, but then so are some of the BSB tracks, as we've said. Um, but they're fantastic to watch. You know, they're quick tracks, very sort of diverse settings. Again, you know, VIR is just the greenest sort of surrounding to a track I've ever seen. I mean, it's just acres and acres of gr- lush green grass. So... Yeah, I would recommend anybody to watch that. Um, so we'll see how things develop. I'm very, very much looking forward to listening to Greg White on the Garage Pod, uh, which will come out any any moment, I would think, and to see what he has to say about Petrucci's comments on the back of the weekend just gone, because Greg was not particularly happy with Petrucci's comments uh, on the back of the Road Atlanta incident, let's call it. So yeah, waiting, uh, waiting to see what Greg's got to say. <laughs> 
So there was other racing. There was BSB last weekend and World Superbike. World Superbike was a ding-dong battle. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I don't think almost everybody has. Top Rack saved there towards the end of the lap in the last chicane at uh, Estoril was outstanding. Remind you of anybody? <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. It uh, There were a lot of people who had put together pictures of the two of two people who are famous for saving front ends in the same corner. And they do look so incredibly similar as Matt Oxley had said, there's definitely the look in top racks eyes is what really makes it because he didn't have a dark visor on. So, and then I think also what got it for me was not only did he just save it, he didn't take a moment to think about it. He simply went right back on the attack against Johnny Ray. Yeah. So we're being treated, I think to something very, very special in world Superbike right now so we should be watching that and rich there was oh sorry go ahead rich well people are obviously quite rightly focusing on that that save that happened on the the sprint race on the sunday morning which was kind of sketchy conditions there was a, a bit of a dry line but it was quite narrow as is often the case and top rack was pushing a bit harder than he needed to do on the last lap really but johnny ray was just hanging on in there and kind of yeah, didn't really let him off the hook. And that's what happened. You know, he went in a bit too hard into that final kind of nagery uphill chicane that they put in years ago. Uh, and so, yeah, had that amazing save. But it must be said that the three races over the weekend and pretty much the three races over all of the World Superbike re- uh, weekend so far this season, I think this has been, Estoril was round four. Pretty much every race has been like that with Bautista, Johnny Ray and uh, Toprak absolutely taking lumps out of each other so it's absolutely outstanding world superbike this year and i'm definitely gonna uh try and have greg uh my friend greg from dorna uh, not from dorna from eurosport back on uh, asap so that we can sort of talk about the first four or five rounds and just get his take on things yep and there was bsb rich do you want to make a yeah, note of that just or? just very quickly yeah uh bsb at donington so again three Brilliant races, a uh, few thrills and spills, as you normally will get. I think probably we need to try and, or I need to try and have a little bit of a kind of a special on BSB just to sort of catch up on the first few rounds again that we've had there as well. That's that's possibly something I could talk to Greg about as well, because Greg uh, doesn't commentate on the BSB, but he's normally at the rounds uh, commentating on some of the other series. So he's very much ingrained in the BSB paddock as well. So perhaps we'll do a catch up on World and, and British Superbikes uh, with Greg uh, in the coming weeks. All right. Sounds good. I think we've tortured the listeners for long enough. Everybody's yep. been wanting this. Let's go to the 2023 rider grid. So the way Rich and I decided this, we're going to run it down in alphabetical order. So for those of you who may not know, we're going to talk Aprilia, Ducati, Grassini, LCR Honda, Yamaha, Monster Yamaha, Mooney VR46, Premac, Red Bull KTM, Repsol Honda, Suzuki, Tech 3, and then with you, <laughs> Yamaha. Who wants to go first, Rich? Oh, I think you should go first. Okay, Ken. all right. You'll see Nick on the show. <laughs> so, Aprilia for 2023. I have Alasia Spargro being partnered by Alex Renz. You probably had the same there on that one. Yeah. Yeah, I don't see this going any other way. There's no way reason that I see Aprilia not to keep Alasia. She has done the donkey work and has proven that it is good. Renz needs a ride, and I think that Vinales' time in this paddock is coming to an end. That's how. That's where I have everyone at that point. I concur. I mean, I think, yeah, Vinales, I just really can't see how he can retain that spot. I kind of foresee a sabbatical stroke early retirement looming for him. 
anybody that watched the um, uh, that MotoGP kind of fly on the wall series on Amazon. That- oh yeah, yeah, Amazon. Yeah, they finally got sub- subtitles. Finally, so now I can watch it. So I've been watching. After the disastrous launch, yeah, I mean, that was, uh, well, and it hasn't been recommissioned. I mean, this is a story for another day, but it hasn't been recommissioned, interestingly. So quite clearly, you know, it was, it was a bit of a screw up, really, the whole way it was handled and, and launched. But anyway, I mean, that's a separate issue. But one of the things that came across quite strongly in that series, I thought, was that Maverick, you know, he's got a young wife and he's got a young child, you know, mm-hmm. let's be honest, he doesn't need the money, I'm sure, after several years in the MotoGP paddock. So you do wonder whether he might just turn his attention to non-bike racing related things. I certainly don't see him as a guy that will end up in World Superbikes or definitely not in Moto America. Imagine the whinging that he'd do there. So I just don't see it. Like you, I think Elaish will be rewarded with another contract. Although, funnily enough, I mean, there are these persistent rumours that he and the team are at loggerheads over the, the details of the contract, which normally means money. I think the problem is, is he's asked for a pay hike, as you would quite rightly expect, but is also quite keen to keep the finish bonus uh, schedule in place in the contract. And I think it's costing Aprilia, you know, a lot of money at the moment because he's pretty much rocking up on the podium at every race. So, and he does have a bit of a track record of being a good development rider and then getting dumped out of a team, you know, think Suzuki, for example. So he, he needs to be careful, but I think that will be a done deal. And Rin's would be a perfect choice, I think, for the Aprilia, because, again, he's another very good development rider and probably a much steadier teammate and a more useful teammate than Vinales is proving to be. So, yeah, I think we're on the same page with Aprilia. Okay, so we'll move on to the factory Ducati. As of right now, it's Miller and Benyaya. In 2023, I have it as Benyaya and Bastianini. Yeah. I'm okay. saying we went we went two for two, but those are kind of let's face it, those are kind of easy <laughs> ones, right? We haven't conferred on this, everybody. This is this is the first time we've shared these lists. So, I mean, Banyaya has a contract, as we know, uh, and probably just as well that he does, because although Martin's not really pushing the issue too hard at the moment, but and I was kind of starting to drop into this camp pre Lamar. I was dropping into the camp of thinking that perhaps Bastianini might be quite happy to stay put at the Grassini team, but with a 23 works bike and some more Ducati personnel in the team, in his kind of on his side of the garage. But the rather kind of spiky comments that he made back at, aimed at Banyaya in the Le Mans post-race press conference, which I don't know if you caught any of that, Jim, but Banyaya was being quite sort of clear in his preference to have Miller stay in uh, the team and, Bastianini is as good as said, yeah, that's because you think I'm going to beat you. So I think that signals in his mind the ego and the intention to get into that team and start to rough it up. So I'm pretty sure, yeah, I think Ducati will be forced into that decision. So for me, when we first started down this path, I had Benyaya there and I had Martin going there. I have changed. I moved, I moved off of Martin yeah. just because of Martin's form right now. Yep. And put Bastianini in there because Bastianini is proving again that the 2021 Ducati is the best motorcycle. Yeah. Now it gets a little tougher. So we go to Grassini. Grassini has, has, as of right now, Bastianini and DG Antonio. So I have for 2023 in Grassini, they will have Jack Miller paired with DG Antonio. Okay, now we diverge. Okay. 
I agree with you. I think Digi Antonio, although you might, if you're being rather uncharitable, considering this is his first season and he hasn't, he's not pulling up any trees, is he? But, you know, I think people deserve a couple of years to try and find their feet and, you know, get moving. And he's very much a Grassini. He's part of that family almost. He's, you know, he came through Moto2 with Grassini. So he's very entwined into that team. And I think he was kind of Fausto's chosen one, if you like. So I think just the, the fact that Fausto's not around anymore kind of almost makes Digi Antonio a bit of a shoe in I think, in that team, certainly next year. So I'm, I would agree with you on that. I differ on Miller. Okay. Uh, so we'll come to that in okay. terms of my thoughts later on. I'm I'm a little bit sitting on the fence with the other side of the garage, though. But right now, I'm saying Vietti. Really? Who I think would be a reasonably sensible fit. But I think this one might come down to who wins the championship. And I could quite easily see Aaron Connett moving into that team as well. Yep. So I'm being a bit naughty. I'm saying one or the other because I That's can't okay. quite make my mind up at the moment. But I would put, yeah, I'd, I'd say Vietti or Canet at the moment. And both of whom would be sort of worthy of the seat. But on the balance at the minute, I'd go Canet rather than Vietti because, I mean, his form has dropped off rather over the last couple of races, hasn't it? Yep. That's interesting because I have other names that have appeared other places that you've mentioned. So okay find out. yeah well that's that's the, the the beauty of this sort of uh fantasy wish list yeah yes <laughs> okay moving to lcr honda as of right now they have nakagami partnered by alex marquez in 2023 i have that as an all japanese team nakagami and agura okay because i say i think Inimitsu is an Asian company. I think they, I think Honda puts a lot into that team. I think Honda wants to see just, they want to honor Nakagami with one more season, right? That's just how it's going to play out. And then Ayagura is going to go from Moto2 to go there because the kid has proven that he's fast, he's quick, he's won races. And I think as he goes up, he seems to get better. So that's why I put Agura there. Now, Alex Marquez, I got hit. If you want to ask me where he's going, I think he's going back to Moto2. Perhaps maybe on the Indimetsu team, riding alongside Chantra or something like that. Okay. Hit me with yours. Uh, okay, so I'll start with the current riders. I think Nakagami and Alex Marquez will end up as a second HRC work supported world superbike team. Both men to a world superbike. Interesting. Because, and I say that because uh, the Honda in world superbike has taken a step forward. They've got, for people that might not be following world superbike quite as closely, so they've got uh, Ikaleko Ona, obviously, who came out of MotoGP last year from uh, Tech 3 KTM, and Xavi Vierge went across from moto two and both of those riders are doing pretty well and that bike is making progress but i think and i think that might encourage hrc to push harder and assuming there is leeway in the rules and then the grid arrangements and stuff to have another kind of works or semi-works team in the world superbike paddock which i would have thought would be the case i could quite easily see that happening and it kind of keeps them both in the hrc family doesn't stop them coming back to MotoGP again. They could be on HRC contracts, for example. So I think that could be a potential soft landing for both of those riders. I, I, I 
just don't think Nakagami's done enough to retain that seat after the, because he's never had a podium in MotoGP, Jim, for one thing. Right. So my LCR Honda team for next year is Ayagura. With Miller. With Miguel Oliveira. With Oliveira. Whoa. <laughs> you are speculative and I like it. Yeah. I, I, I mean, Oliveira, I think, is not having a very good time at KTM. I think they like and respect Oliveira, but Binder's kind of the chosen guy there. And at KTM, we know, have a bit of a problem in terms of that bike. And I just don't think Oliveira is quite the guy to ride around the problems in the meantime. Now, you might argue that perhaps, you know, going onto the Honda might be jumping out of the frying pan straight into another frying pan. And that may well prove to be the case. But I think he would be a good fit at Honda because, again, he's a very good development rider. He's very experienced now quite a steady character, quite methodical and sort of almost scientific in the way he goes about his business. Uh, and he'll obviously be able to look after everybody's teeth in the team as well, which was, uh, which is a good thing. So I could be a dentist. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's a little bit of a left field idea, but I kind of think that that could happen. This is your dream wish list. So I like it. You know, half the fun is going to be, because I plan on keeping this. And yes. when we actually know what the 2023 grid is, we're going to go back and say what we thought and say what happened. It's see yeah. just how close we are. Because I guarantee you we're going to be wrong. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a forecast. It. It's a forecast. It's just a question of how wrong it is. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So that moves us to Monster Yamaha, who have Fabio Quattraro and Frankie Morbidelli. In 2023, I have the Monster Yamaha team as Fabio Quattraro and Raul Fernandez. Yeah. You picked the same? I have, yes. No, <laughs> I have. I think that was probably the team that should have been there already this year. Uh, Quattraro's bargaining position, given the Suzuki bombshell, has been significantly weakened. Yeah. And I just don't see options for him anywhere else now. And it's a, it's a bit of a godsend probably for Yamaha in terms of how much they're going to have to pay. But I just don't see that it suits either party not to conclude that deal given what we now know, uh, particularly, as we say, with the Suzuki news. And Raul Fernandez is having a very torrid time at KTM, mm-hmm. Tech, 3, Tech 3 KTM. And we know he wanted to be on the Yamaha prior to that KTM move being announced. So it would make a lot of sense for that to happen. The only outlier on this re- remains uh, Toprak Razgatioglu, who still has a test early in June on the M1, but I think Yamaha is cooling towards bringing him across, given some of the demands that are being made, uh, and the fact that, as we're going to go on to talk about in a minute, there might only be two Yamahas on the grid next year, which probably will leave him without anywhere to go, unless he decides to switch to a different manufacturer, which is another interesting idea. Yeah, there's there's many, many permutations that will go through here. So that moves us to the Mooney VR46 team. They have uh, Luca Marini and Bezecchi, who are on that team right now. For 2023, I see no change there. I say they stay pat. Yeah, I agree uh, completely with that. Bezecchi, I think, will be expected to have a very strong second year. He's having a strong rookie campaign. Yeah, why move him? And Marini is sort of solid, uh, and he's Valley's half brother. So, yeah, I don't see him getting moved out. No, nope. not now. 
No, do not see that one. Do not see that one moving at all. Move to Premac then? Mm-hmm. Okay. So Premac is Zarco and Jorge Martin. I have next year the exact same lineup again because there's no other place for anybody to go. Martin has Martin may have had a hand on a factory contract, but that's not the hot hand. Ducati will like to likes to ride the hot hand. So Martin will be stationed in that team again until he turns hot. And then he'll go to the factory team. So Zarco, Zarco is going to stay, but I don't know if that's going to be Zarco's last year or not. Like 2024, that may not be Zarco in that seat. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. No change at that team. Martin, like you, Jim, I would have put some money a few, or certainly at the beginning of the season, that he was a shoe into the works. Ducati squad, but you know what do they all say about tires in a race? You've always got to be on the right tire. Well, it's the same with riders. You've got to have the right rider in the team based on the conditions. And quite clearly, Martin is not having a very good year compared with for, for all of his potential, which is undoubted. But he's young, and as you say, he just needs time to just sort of settle down with the pressure off. Perhaps if Bastini does get confirmed uh, alongside Banyard, that takes a bit of heat off Martin, allows him just to hopefully consolidate, regroup a little bit and start picking up his form again. Uh, and as you say, getting getting hot, getting his market value back up again. Because, you know, in the last year or so, and certainly in the last race or two, Ban- or this season, Banyaya has shown himself to be vulnerable in terms of when there's pressure on him and so on. So although he's got a contract next year, I don't know how long his contract is, if it just takes him through next year, or if it's a multi-year affair. But, you know, obviously there'll be another spot that opens up in that team at some stage. And Martin... You know, we'll be waiting in the wings to do it. Zarko's been around for ages. The team love him. And he's a solid, you know, regular top 10 finisher. So he racks the points up. So why why change it? Mm-hmm. Agreed. I do think Premac wants to move themselves up more. And I think that that Martinez is seen as the guy who's going to put them, give them the polls, give them some uh, TV coverage, and will yeah. bring people to that team. So he's going to stay there for just for at least one more season. Again, it all depends on what happens with Ben Yaya. I mean, it's all fluid, but it's going to go around in, in circles like that. So that brings us to the first of the orange bikes, Red Bull KTM. They currently have Bender and Oliveira. That's Brad Bender. I don't think KTM makes a change. I think Oliveira stays. Okay. And we know Binder's staying put because he's got a contract and there's no way any shenanigans are going to happen with his contract because he's on a long-term one there and they love him. And, you know, although he still struggles a little bit on a Saturday, you can always rely on him, or pretty much always rely on him, to turn in a good result on the Sunday. So, yeah, Binder's an absolute dead cert there. I, okay, so cards on the table. Again, I've got a little bit of a either-or, and this is applicable to both the Red Bull, the works Red Bull KTM team and Tech 3. So are you ready, Jim? Sure, go ahead. I've got two names, and they're either going to be uh, Binder's teammate or they're going to be on the Tech 3 team. So that is either Miller or Paul Espargaro. I think there was a, a degree of regret, probably certainly with the benefit of hindsight on both sides, uh, or certainly from Paul Espargaro's point of view, a degree of regret 
that he left that team when he did because it was not a well-timed move. No. But I, I suspect there's a degree of openness towards having him back. If I was going to bet on it, I'd probably say that Miller will land in Oliveira's place. And the reason I say that is because, well, I mean, we've heard rumours that there are talks going on, but he is managed by Akiayo as well, who is obviously very much ingrained as part of the KTM establishment. So the move makes quite a lot of sense to me um, because Miller's a sort of a scruff of the net, pragmatic Aussie. I think, you know, he possibly would do quite well on the KTM. And he's got a lot of experience, you know, on other makes. You know, he toured away on the Honda, which was a difficult bike for several years, if you remember. Oh, yeah. Um, and he's been on the Ducati for several years. So he brings a lot of useful information with him as well. Um, and he was very much a favourite of uh, Guidotti when he was part, when they were both part of the Pramac setup. So uh, Guidotti is now the team manager at Red Bull KTM. So there's a, a number of stars that are aligning to make me think that Miller could be a, you know, a, a logical fit into one or other of the KTM teams. But I would suggest or, or bet at the moment that it would be the main works team i thought about it i thought about miller here or in tech three for all the reasons you mentioned i went away from it because i was watching the amazon series much being limited and I, I saw how tardazzi sort of interacted with miller and how uh, who's this who's the the, the money guy chipotle not chipotle but you I always want to call him Chipata. I always want to call him Chipata, but that's bread, isn't yeah. it? I think it's uh, Paolo Chipati. I think Chipati. His, uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's I think right. that's yeah. his name. So he and I saw how he dealt with Miller in these few episodes. I just think that they they like Miller, and I think they want him on a bike. They just don't want him on the factory bike because he's just not performing. And I think I think that's kind of like Ferrari and F1. Ferrari will go find the hot hand and throw it in one of their cars thinking that that's, you know, we'll fix their problem. Not that they have a problem, but it's always sort of been that way. Mm. You know, and, and you, you, you race for the, for the, for the team, for the Scuderia, and then you race for yourself. And I think that's kind of how it is with Ducati a bit. I think that's an Italian thing. Yeah. So, I, I could have went either way with that, but that's I picked. It was it was in my head, <laughs> so you're not far off. But I just I thought, nah, we'll keep Miller in the in Grissini and see what happens. I think Miller is really highly regarded in the Ducati organization. Yep, and I think in a perfect world they would keep him uh, without a doubt. And a Banyai clearly would like him to stay. Mm-hmm. But I just think it's a case, unfortunately, for Jack Miller of kind of musical chairs and he's going to be the one left standing up when the music stops because again it's a little bit like we talk about with the ktm situation in terms of the number of riders that they got on the books yeah you know if, if pramac is unchanged then where's miller going to go i don't see him going to grassini i think that would be a bit and again no offense to grassini but that would be quite a step down from miller's point of view and as pragmatic as he is if he's got a works ride at another manufacturer and presumably a fairly you know, handsome paycheck to go with it, then why would he not take that? But see, that's where I think Miller decides to go to Grissini because he's watched Bastianini win three races. Indemetsu has not won a race. KTM hasn't won a race. Mm. I, I don't know. I Again, this is all speculative, people. We're just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. 
It's just going to yeah. be interesting. No, no, I mean, we're, we're probably wrong on a lot of this stuff. I'm uh, sure we are. You know, the only thing I'll say is that, you know, okay, Miller did win a couple of races on the 21 Ducati, but I don't think he's he won more races on it than Bastianini's already won. So, I, I mean, I just think he's probably going to look for pastures new. I think it's a good time in his career to do that. It's all possible. Move on to Repsol Honda. Yep. Okay, Repsol Honda. Uh, we're, we, <laughs> we're going to be the same on this one. I know I'm we sure. Are. I'm sure we are, because because I'm quite sure, just like we were the same on Aprilia, we're the same here, because I believe we all know Marquez has a contract that is Mark. He has a four-year deal, and I think this next year would be the last of the four-year deal that he got into, if I remember correctly. But he's going to be joined by Juan Mir. Yeah. From Suzuki. Yeah. That's going to happen. Yeah. I can't see that not being the case. And let's be honest, from a marketing point of view, it's a marketeer's wet dream, isn't it? I mean, Mark oh, yeah. Marquez and Jan Mir in the Repsol team. So I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if that deal's already been done. It's just delayed in terms of announcement. It could even be announced at Mugello uh, this weekend because, you know, Mugello is quite often a a venue where a number of announcements start to get made. Although, again, the whole spanner in the works Suzuki situation might well mean that silly season rumbles on for quite a bit longer because, of course, it puts a lot of the power back into the team's hands, really, with a lot of riders <laughs> looking around for, for jobs or desperately trying to protect their, their current positions. But, yeah, definitely with you on that one. I mean, Mark Marquez is a little bit like McDoon, isn't he? He will always be at Honda or connected to Honda in some way or another, Yes. Re regrettably, because I think it's always nice when riders take that risk and try to win on more than one mark. But um, Mark has an M-A-R-Q-U-E, uh, <laughs> just to be clear. Yes. But yeah, Mark Marquez ain't going anywhere. And uh, yeah, I just think, yeah, John Mir is just an obvious fit to jump in alongside him. Tough on Paul Spargo, but as I say, I think he'll end up just about surviving. Mm -hmm. Okay. The next team would be Suzuki. So let's let's hold that, okay? Let's put uh -huh. that at the end because we don't know if there's going to be a team or not. I, I think there's going to be some team, so I've got riders that are going to be there. Okay. So we'll, we'll, let's just jump over that one. So we'll, we'll come back there, folks. So that leaves us with Tech 3. Uh, Raul Fernandez and Remy Gardner on the bikes as of today. Next year, I have Polis Barger partnering Remy Gardner. Yep. Good chat. Yeah, same for me. This is amazingly close, actually. I didn't think we'd be quite as aligned as this. I don't, I'm amazed that we're this close, too, because it, you'd think we had discussed this prior, but we didn't. I mean, we, <laughs> no, definitely not. We've never said that this is what we have, but this is where we are. I think Gardner is just a scruffy Aussie who's, going, who's getting along with the bike better than anybody else. I do think he is liked in the organization IO, um, you know, and in Tech 3 uh pole makes sense to put him somewhere and since i think that ktm and the factory squad it's like i think they will welcome him back but i'm not so sure they would welcome him back and to the actual factory fold hey mm. we love you we want you back but here we're going to put you over here on equal equipment we shall see yeah i mean it might be what he needs because if you know he's dealing with geek Ulam and everyone there it might be the guy that that is the magic that makes it happen for him. Be, you know, it did for Oliveira when Oliveira was there, when the KTM was a new Easter on the come. Let's just put it that way. 
And so if they KTM finds something in the offseason, fixes something, gets a direction, it's quite possible that pole could be battle be pole could be what Alesh is this year. I think I mean what I think we can say without any shadow of contradiction is that the KTM bike at the moment, and let's assume that the tech three bike, okay, it'll be a bit behind spec wise compared to the main works team, but they've been toiling away with a difficult bike for a couple of seasons now, certainly since the second half of last season and all of this season. And to me, you know, tech three are lumbered with not lumbered, but they're in a very difficult position because they've got two rookies, one of whom doesn't even want to be there. And so they ain't making any progress at all. So I think although Gardner was starting to do a bit of trash talk and got put in his place by, um, Hervé Poncheral quite firmly in an interview that went out. In fact, it was a podcast, the, the official Dawn of podcast that goes out. Um, I haven't listened to it yet, but I've read that he was kind of saying people need to stop moaning and start working. So, or words to that effect. Because uh, Gardner had said prior to the race, uh, was he hoping for wet weather? And he said, no, I'm hoping for a tornado which rips the track up and then I don't have to get on the bike at all. And that didn't, quite understandably, that did not go down terribly well. It was words to that effect in any case. So I think he's crying out for an experienced teammate and the team needs a more experienced second rider there, which was obviously was what Petrucci was meant to be, but he was just at the wrong end of his career and too big for the bike. So I think bringing Pole back with all of his prior experience or bringing Miller across as a, you know, a, a suitably tough, gritty trier at, you know, as well, with a lot of Ducati experience, that makes a huge amount of sense for one or other of those guys to be on the on the other side of the garage. That gets us down to with you, Yamaha. Uh, so you said something just earlier. Oh, let's back. Let's go back to KTM just for a quick second. So let's let's go yep. back there with Tech Three and whatnot. Do you remember Jenny Anderson was poached by Honda and she's not with that team anymore. And I wonder if that has something to do with what, where they are. Cause she was very good at looking at suspension and diagnosing and doing all that. And the reason she was that good is that's why she went to um, yeah. Honda and why she went with quote, went there with pole because she had been working with him. So it's food mm. for thought, food for thought on how KTM struggled. Well, and it's a correlation, Jim, at the end of the day, you know, she left and suddenly they started to, you know, increasingly find life more and more difficult. So it could be unrelated. But then again, you know, is it really a coincidence? I mean, she's obviously very highly enough regarded to have been poached, you know, by HRC, which is, you know, something of an something. accolade, I, I would suggest. Yeah. Okay. So you're talking that is there going to be two Yamaha teams on the grid? So are you thinking with you is not going to be there or are you thinking they're just not going to have a Yamaha as a bike? Well, uh, as of this week, no contract is signed between that team and Yamaha to run Yamaha's next year. Okay. And we know that Aprilia are, are desperately keen to have two more bikes on the grid next year. And again, just going on what you read and, and listen to, I think there's a lot of momentum behind the likelihood of um, that team running Aprilia's next year. Okay. Which would make a lot of sense for both of those parties because uh, let's although the Yamaha is leading the championship it's only leading it because they've got one very very talented rider who can make that bike work the other three riders are nowhere to be seen 
relatively speaking. Hmm. So do does the RNF team really want to be on Yamaha's again next year? Possibly, possibly not. And if they had the opportunity to go with a Prilly, which is arguably the best all-round bike on the grid right now, I, I think that would make would just be sensible to go in that direction from the team's point of view, wouldn't it? I agree. It creates a few complications with the riders, which is what we're going to come on to now. So let's see what you got. <laughs> this is where it gets crazy. Yeah. Given the influx of that, and given and given that there is potential that the Suzuki team will be something something team this is where it gets kind of crazy for me i'm going with i'm, I'm going with the fact that that the i guess i need to say this so to just justify where i have people suzuki gets the old suzuki team becomes an aprilia satellite team okay for me in okay. uh was it rn rf rnf um, RNF yeah. Yamaha yeah. stays as a Yamaha because they make they cut a deal with Yamaha, and the price point is not as expensive as what it would be if they were with Aprilia. That's how I see it. So, with that being said, I think Vietti goes to replace Davizioso, and Darren Bender is replaced by Morbidelli. So, Morbidelli kind of goes back home where he was more comfortable and on a bike that he road better yeah to sec to second in the championship correct so that's where i'm going with on that one now if we take this in tandem so we're going to go back up to the suzuki team for me that isn't a team but i think will be a team and i think that they'll have the aprilias i think because of the money that got spent to guarantee them an aprilia the riders become a bit of an issue because that's a big outlay of money. So I'm putting Kinnett there in the team based on, hey, here's the up-and-coming kid that Aprilia looks at potentially as being something that they want to put to the factory team, so let's try him out here. And then the cast-off, Darren Bender, shows up there as well in that old Suzuki team, mainly, mainly because I think that – he has done pretty well on that Yamaha and he's basically outshone Doby significantly. So I think people would look at that and say, well, that's kind of a safer bet than taking another rookie to the class. Interesting. As crazy as it is, that's, that's where I am. Okay. So start with what could be the Yamaha, which what RNF, Start there and tell me what bike and then tell me what riders. Right. Okay. So, well, all right. I personally, and again, I only, I'm only saying this because I'm going along with what people that are in the paddock say, and you would hope that they are factually clued in much more than I am, but I'm going to stick to what I'm hearing and reading or listening to, which is that there will not be 24 riders on the grid next year. There will be 22. Okay. So the Suzuki team, basically, those two grid slots are vacant for the time being, for one season at least. And again, not necessarily to go into it now, but there are various reasons why that might suit Dorna financially as well, because COVID has cost Dorna an awful lot of money. And if they don't have to support financially, which they do quite heavily, the independent teams, it might suit them just to not have to do that for a year. 
or even two. So I don't think so. So it makes the the last two seats a bit even more of a scrabble if that's the case. Sure. I'm going to stick to my guns and say that the with you RNF team, if it's still called that next year, will be Aprilia's. Okay. I think a deal gets done with Morbid Delhi to take him out. Although he's contracted, I think a sweet a sweetener deal will be done with Morbid Delhi to move him out of that team to make way for Fernandez. Or possibly Razgatiaglu, but I would I would go with Fernandez because that's what I wrote down. And from his point of view, he goes back home, as you perfectly put it a minute ago, Jim, in terms of the team, much of which is presumably unchanged, although it obviously went through a bit of a, a death spiral with the Patronus withdrawal. Uh, and if he ends up riding an Aprilia, was he going to complain? I doubt it, because there's a better bike on balance than the Yamaha. And certainly a much better bike for him to ride at the moment based on his current form on the Yamaha. So now I've got one space left on the grid. And I think this becomes a mad scramble for the last, particularly if it's an Aprilia. So just going back a moment to the KTM thing, because this is kind of pertinent to this last seat. I personally think it's all, well, it's, I think it's definitely the case that Acosta stays in Moto2 next year. I don't think Augusto Fernandez is doing anything really to suggest that he would be a particularly tempting rookie prospect for any of the MotoGP teams at the moment. So, okay, he won the last race, fair enough, but that's the first real sign of progress, I would say, that he's really made this year. KTM have a problem in the wings in the form of what are they going to do next year with Jaime Masia if he wins the Moto3 Championship? Where the hell do they put him? So, I mean, again, we've got this logjam uh, and two less rides in MotoGP, of course, do not help that problem. But anyway, that's the situation potentially. Although, again, Jim, you think that those two seats will be filled and I very much hope that that does prove to be the case. Of course I do. So, in terms of an outside bet for the second seat, if it's an Aprilia, I think that could be Razgatioglu. I think that would make sense for him to come across. I could easily see Darren Binder staying put because he's not disgracing himself by any stretch of the imagination this year. I think certainly in terms of some of the wilder worries that we had about him based on some of his antics in Moto3, I think he's acquitted himself in MotoGP very well. And although he's had one or two run-ins with people, I think he's taken it on the chin and he's done his best to kind of learn and sort of say, okay, you know, and he's he's had a few crashes, but then, you know, they've all had a few crashes. So, and he wouldn't be a rookie. So as you say, Jim, I mean, there would be some reason to, to retain him, whether it's a Yamaha or an Aprilia. As outliers, you've got Canet and Vietti, if they didn't end up on the other seats that we've mentioned. And I would almost put Cambobier in the mix as well, because I think he is desperately needed on a big bike. I mean, that's where he comes from. And if those two seats don't get filled next year, I would like to put a shout out straight away and some uh, metaphorical money on the table for an American racing MotoGP team in 2024 with Cambobia and possibly Garrett Gerloff or maybe even Jake Gagne, who deserves a shot in the big time again, I think. I mean, he had a couple of seasons at HRC and World Superbike and didn't do so well, but the bike wasn't really up to, up to snuff then. So... This is obviously all going to play out over the next sort of 24 months, isn't it? But um, 
in terms of my list, I've got Morbidelli on that RNF bike next year. I think that's almost certainly going to happen, unless he really digs his heels in on the contract. But I suppose that could happen. But in terms of the second seat, I'm really struggling to put a name to it just at the moment. If it's I, tough. It's if I was tough. forced to, I'd say Darren Binder stays put. Because I think he deserves to, to be fair to him. Uh, yeah, that's why I have him there. Yeah, I think he deserves to stay in the paddock. He's acquitted himself well. It's like, if that bike is an Aprilia, then I think it's a bit much for a bit rich for them to to have those bikes. But people could argue that it's a bit rich for Fernandez and Gardner to have KTM's right now too. So yeah, yeah, it, it goes either way, right? It it doesn't know, but yeah, I think I'm shocked that we are we are we're the same one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Of the seven, seven teams of the ele- of the 11, 12, the 12 teams, seven of them we've agreed upon, which I find very interesting that we think yeah. that, that close. But that's where it's going to be. Guys, write us at motopod at motopodcast.com. Tell us what you think is going to be the 2023 rider lineups and tell us where we're wrong. And more <laughs> importantly, tell us why we're wrong, because we'd like to know. I'd like to say, Jim, that our being so aligned is because, you know, that's why we get paid the big bucks. But Actually, we don't get paid anything at all, so <laughs> it's just blind luck. Let's put it down to that. I know there's a lot of zero. There's a lot of zeros on my paycheck. They just happen to come after the decimal point. That's the problem, and there's a zero in front as well. Yeah, never mind. <laughs> we live in hope. We live in hope. So that's the grid, guys. Like I said, let us know what you think about it. Let's move on to the interview that's going to be after this, Rich. Um, yeah. So as I said earlier, we had a conversation it's about two hours it's a very long conversation with alan dove and otto lappy who are two guys who sat down and decided to write a book trying to explain to you how the racer's mind actually works this isn't about concussions it isn't about um how you feel on a motorcycle or things of that nature from from a health or medical standpoint this is about how your brain functions when you're going fast and it's written in a really cool way it explains to you a lot of the jargon and premise and how to drive a car and other things that are there just to get you a grounding level so that you understand where you are but then it delves into like really cool things that come into like chunking and we talk about that in the interview which is how do you learn to track you learn it in chunks and how does your mind work with the chunk and then there's patterns and how we recognize patterns like chess players recognize patterns very quickly and guys who are good at learning racetracks do the same thing. So that's a bit of a teaser for, for what's there for that interview. Rich, I thought it was a great interview that we, that they did. I don't know if you want to add a little more before we actually go to the interview or not. Well, only, uh, I think I mentioned it in the interview itself and the, the very interesting discussion that we had with uh, Alan and Otto, but um you know i well first of all i would recommend all of the listeners to go and seek this book out i'm not going to lie it's a it's a hard read in the sense that it's it's a very technical book um both in terms of vehicle dynamics and you know the physiology of the human brain this is not a book that tells you how to go fast it tells you how the brain functions as an organ in the environment of a mostly race car although they do make reference to bikes and having had the chat with the guys it's clear that you know they're both very much you know big fans of two wheels and 
you'll hear several instances where we're saying second edition must be bike racing focused. So that would be interesting because there are obviously differences, but in terms of the technicalities, in terms of the machinery, but uh, yeah, so I would encourage people to seek it out. I mean, people write books in the hope that people will buy them and read them in particular. So that's what we hope people will do. It's available on Amazon. You can download it as an ebook, I think. So there's various ways that you can get it. It's, it is well worth your time and effort, but you know, it is a book that requires reading passages several times over and trying to actually understand if you're into science and engineering which most people you know that are into bike racing or car racing at least have passing interest in those things and this is a book that will be fascinating to you so i yeah seek it out and um, i'm sure you'll enjoy it with that here's the interview hey motorpotters jim here just a little bit before i get to the interview um when i was editing it it came out being kind of sterile and there was a part where we kind of were at the end but then rich asked another question and it led to like another 30 odd minutes of interview which is really the best part because it's really like four guys sitting in a bar discussing this book so i left it in there's a little bit in there that I hope you guys don't mind is in there, but I think it's really cool and I wanted it to feel like the bar situation and just mates chatting about things as opposed to being really sterile. So I hope you'll forgive me and please enjoy. Hey, Motorpotters, it's Jim and Rich together for the first time for a double interview with two very special guests, one being uh, Dr. Otto Lappi, PhD, and Alan Dove, who have written a book about the science of the racer's brain. As you know, Rich and I have been pretty fascinated by what racers think and how they react and concussions and how that affects us on the brain. And these gentlemen reached out to us to talk about their book, which we have read and we're going to review on the show. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hello. So, Otto, I'll start with you. Why did you guys write this book? Because uh, it's from a very different perspective from anything else I've seen on dealing with a racer and his brain. Well, I'd say that is exactly the reason why we wrote the book. So uh, we, we, we kind of uh, felt that this is the book we've always wanted to read, but uh, nobody else had written anything like this. So we just had to do it ourselves. So to have the book, we had to write one. So you're the uh, the more the scientific side of this because I, I think yes. uh, Alan, I find correct me if I'm wrong. You're more the petrolhead, <laughs> given the all the uh, rotors and racing stuff that I see behind you in the screen here as well. So um, Otto, Otto, I'd say Otto is a petrolhead as well. I'll, I'll give him that. I think um, one of the fortunate things when when I first communion, communicated with Otto was. I reached out to him because I was looking for a scientist who was writing about driving and eye strategies. And a lot of Otto's work was, was predominantly in the sort of road car realm. But um, it was very good when we, we started to communicate more that he is just as much of a petrol head as I am, as you'll learn, he's a, he's a big Porsche man um, and, 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 and loves all that kind of stuff. So really that was kind of fortunate because that's really what made the book work was because we are, but I mean, but of course he is the, the scientist and I, and I can't compete on that front. Um, you know, he's, he's one of the leading scientists in the field. So um, yeah, I just wanted to give him his, his dues that we, we both, we both sort of 
have petrol in our veins. And was the concept of the book your idea then, Alan? Was it you that kind of approached um, approached it in terms of getting this book uh, written? Um, I was. I I reached out to Otto first. It was purely wasn't anything, nothing to do with writing a book. It was because I was working in the driver coaching realm, and I kind of you know like I I come from the realm of like Keith Code reading Keith Code, and uh, even though that was in the bike realm, Keith seemed to be quite. Um, the way he used to write his books, he was sort of ahead of the game in that sense, particularly with eye strategies and stuff. And I used to work in the, the car racing coaching, but I felt at the time, like my, my, I didn't have a huge amount of confidence in my own knowledge and understanding of really what was going on. You know, I was telling drivers about eye strategies and that kind of thing, but I never felt like I had a real grip on the science. I didn't feel fraudulent as such. I just didn't feel as confident in it. As I, as I really could be. It's like teaching music, but I had a desire to understand the real intricacies of it at a scientific level. And so, you know, you Google things and, and Otto's name popped up and I, I sent him an email um, and, and he got back to me. And it wasn't, it was, you know, we had a lot of communication for several months and I can't recall exactly who came up with the idea. I think there was a bit of synchronicity between us. I think we were both thinking the same thing at the same time. And then obviously... I can't recall who said it first. I think it might have been Otto or I. Um, and then it then it came to fruition from there. Um, but it was a bit, but me, but me and Otto, we um, I, I would say he's, he's a lot smarter than than, than I am. Um, but we, we have a similar, we, we vibe on a similar level. So so the ideas seem to, to come at the same time. Hmm. Yeah, when, um, yeah, sorry. Uh, I, I could just say when we, we were corresponding with Alan, I was thinking of writing a book and I I tried to make like draft text, but they didn't seem to be going anywhere. And then it was actually Christmas Day uh, when Alan then sent, sent, and we hadn't talked about the book, but then Alan sent, just sent a message. Uh, he thinks a book on this topic should be written. And what about us doing it? And I was like, okay, Christmas came on Christmas this year because this is exactly what I want to do. And I, I, I was like, uh, let, let's go for it. Mm, interesting. And the book is actually officially launched now because we have, were very lucky to receive a preview copy, which we've uh, diligently read through. But the book is out there for people to buy now, I guess. Yes, yes, yes. it's all available on Amazon. Um, we're self-publishing it. Um, so it's, it's yeah, you can you can go onto Amazon, search the science of the race's brain, and it's available in paperback, hardback, and ebook as well. Cool. Okay. Uh, I mean, we're kind of approaching this from our interests, as you will appreciate, from the point of view of two wheeled racing, and it struck me how many kind of similarities and thoughts that came out through, through reading through the book. Uh, I mean, obviously there are differences between the two disciplines, but obviously it's it's quite car centric although you do touch on bike racing at various points within the book it, i was wondering if there's a second edition coming along which is going to focus on two wheels at some point <laughs> i'm not going to lie i did think like a, an edition called the science of the rider's brain might be something worthwhile in the future i mm. think because like i'm a huge motorbike person really as well um like if you're very careful because i could go off on, and on a tangent talking about the supercross this year or 502 <laughs> strokes and that kind of stuff um but down, the, yeah <laughs> but the thing about i guess 
there's a lot of crossover in we talking about the base level fundamentals. There's obviously going to be a lot of crossover. Uh, of course, Otto and I are more comfortable in the four wheel realm. You know, my background's carts, really. Yeah. Um, so, so naturally, some of the uh, narratives in the the book might be around cars because car racing is inherently it's it's it's, it's not less complex, but it's it with with a bike you've got much more movement of the body and the balance and there's a layer of complexity there that if you're not super comfortable in that realm um you could probably lose the reader because they could tell very quickly um but there's a lot of crossover and and really a lot of the eye strategy stuff that that came out of the motorbike scene really so um just in terms of the the language of it you know obviously with keith code and other books um mm. i don't know I, there tends to be a higher burden on the, the the riders in motorbikes so there tends to be a bit more uh, literature about it but um yeah while it is mainly focused on on cars we do include bikes bits in there because you know fundamentally it's still you're still driving at speed um and the 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 sort of brain mechanisms at play are going to, they're going to be overlapping quite a lot. Yeah. And certainly um, from the, the mental aspects of bike racing, I mean, I guess a lot of that stuff is very, very similar, perhaps with the one exception that I kind of pulled out, which is possibly that, I mean, there is an element of higher vulnerable vulnerability with riders, I suppose, in terms of that risk element, uh, debatably, but I, I think probably most people wouldn't uh, argue against that one too much either. So whether that suits a certain type of personality or not, we might uh, might get into that shortly. Yeah, I think I mean I'll, I'll let Otto explain. Um, but but part of the book was like we we were trying to get to like a I guess to say like a base framework that that you can then build upon to to inspire others to build upon. Um, you know, like with bike racing, there is a, there is a much higher uh, risk factor there that's that's obvious um like and, and it'd be interesting to investigate whether those mechanisms um differentiate between whether high risk or low risk how that manifests itself in skill acquisition because obviously the skill acquisition in in bikes i mean i've, I've done i've done a little bit of dirt biking and i've done karting and even though karting is physically strenuous on the bike the risk factor is and the skill acquisition learning curve is just a different ballgame but I'll, I'll, I'll pass over to Otto and obviously he can expand upon that. Uh, well uh, one of the the um, uh, one of the inspirations for this book was Dennis Jenkinson's 1959 book The Racing Driver uh, and Jenkinson of course based that on his observations on riding for example with Sterling Moss on the Mille Miglia and also riding sidecars uh, in in I think uh, world championship sidecar racing, and Jenkinson framed his book in term on the on the racing type driver in terms of a racing driver being a racing driver whether they race on two wheels three wheels or four wheels. So the fundamentals are uh, much the same, and the and the approach here is the here is the same as well. Uh, we are more familiar with the car stories and the car framework. So the stories we tell tend to be uh, from the from the car realm, but much of the cognitive fundamentals and the brain mechanisms are the same, especially the as it were higher levels. So we break them 
the mechanism, the cognitive process is down into kind of three levels. There's the navigational level, your reference points and brake markers and, and knowing your way around the track. And then the guidance level, which is your visual strategies and maintaining attentional focus and using your peripheral vision. And then the control level, which is the actual physical movements you have to do to make the vehicle go through the bend. And obviously the control level is then different depending on whether you're on a bike or a, or, or a car or another type of vehicle, but especially the navigational and the guidance uh, requirements and hence the processes are likely quite, quite similar. And then the differences come uh, more, more on the control level, which we have less to say about at, in this edition, at least uh, at, uh, for, for the moment. Uh, the risk and the personality uh, size of it, we do not go into that much. So we start with the fundamentals of, of the information processing and kind of what is understood about memory and attention and perception and motor control processes and how can you apply that to understand the racing driver better. But obviously there's all these other elements, the human, human element of it and the... And the, uh, and, and the um, other topics certainly worthy of a of, of a sequel or two. That's great. I'm glad to hear that there's going to be potentially another book or two in this series. I personally found the very beginning, the framework that you guys laid out was very relatable, I think, for anybody who who has just basically ever driven a car. And I think that's a great way to start, too, is most people will have at some point in their life driven a car and potentially aspire to drive that car a little faster than what they should have <laughs> further. So for, for me, I think that was just a great way to start, start the book and just to lay a framework that you could then work your way off of. Uh, you know, I've been to several different racing schools. I've been to several different driving car schools, race motorcycles myself. So all of that seems familiar. And a, what was amazing to me was a lot of the things that I knew to do and did suddenly were like oh that's the why behind why you do that because in some schools they'll they, they took and i'll make this one example they'll tell you you have to look you're looking out of your peripheral vision you're turning your head you turn your head where you want your the car to go and uh, i took a rally school class once and the hardest thing for me was they were teaching us to unchain our eyes and the car because you have to drive a rally car very straight, all braking, and then turn your head and disassociate while still going straight because you're looking for not the apex so much, but you're looking for that exit point that you'd like to get out of. And I thought that was really well laid out in the book. That It now makes sense to why you, you do that from a cognitive sense. I don't know if you care to elaborate on that part of it, Otto, if you could. That's very nice to hear, and 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 feels like you 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 got from the book what we've been trying to put in there. So we try to give a a, a new perspective or a new angle on the art and the science of driving. So completely new information, but we are not coming in like everything you've all you you've known this far is wrong, and you have to buy our book to learn the learn the other stuff. No, it's it's. 
like all, all these things that are already familiar to you or you you know them there's stuff underneath that's new and that you can find out and you can le- le- learn some of the whys and the wherefores or at least our take on the whys and the wherefores so uh, as, as far as the current state of scientific understanding can bring it we're also hoping of course for scientists to to get excited about this and and people to actually start doing more research in this field, which I think is very, very uh, uh, inspiring also from a scientific perspective with many, many uh, useful aspects that people don't, don't, don't realize. So although I'm a, I'm a petrol head, I'm kind of partial to studying this field in its own right. Also for, for people just interested in these processes, I think racing offers a very good uh, domain to to study human performance at the limit. Mm. I was just going to chime in and kind of compliment you uh, and encourage listeners of, of Motopod to go and seek this book out because, I mean, I'm the very definition of a layperson when it comes to race car engineering and certainly when it comes to brain science. I mean, that is not my field at all. And you're taking very different, very complex subject matters, but I like the way it's very sort of conversationally presented in the way that you've written the book. It makes it very accessible. And it is, I mean, no doubt, it's, it's, a, it's a hard read. And that's a compliment, by the way. I mean, this is a demanding book, which requires several several readings, I would suggest. And as I say, that is a compliment. It makes it very, very worthwhile if you can understand the concepts that you're given. So this is kind of a, a scary topic in a way, but I very much like the way that you've written it and the way you've presented it. And that's partly what Jim was saying about the structure of the book and how you lay things out. But it's also quite an accessible uh, written form as well, which I think really helps. Thank, yeah, I thank think, you. Yeah, go on, got it. Yeah, yeah, was, yeah. Uh, we appreciate that because that was a that was a very important, um, very important thing for us to to have a kind of an accessible book that wasn't going to alienate people because it's very easy to, to venture into that field of um, academia and you have to really bring it back. I mean, we, we always, at the beginning of the project, some of you uh, uh, listeners will be familiar with Oliver Sacks and he's very inspirational to us because he, he took quite complex subjects and, and made them accessible. Um, and that, so to hear that was, yeah, that's, that's really, really good. Yeah. And, and although it is physically a small book, it does go quite deep into some some things. So it was a daunting prospect because we wanted the book to be accessible to people from racing and to talk to people from racing in their own language. But we also want it to be accessible to researchers and students and scientists who don't know about racing. So you're having to educate people from from the racing side on the on the cognition and the and the psychology and the neuroscience of it. And at the same time, you have to educate people who maybe have driven a car, but don't don't, don't know the uh, the uh, the jargon and, and the techniques of of motor racing while doing all of this in a in a in an accessible and conversational way. So we we we've tried our very hardest to to bring this bring bring this to a, to an elementary level where we start everything from the basics and nuts and bolts and build everything that you need uh, to understand it, to have a have an elementary uh, approach. Of course, like uh, Richard Feynman, the physicist, once said that elementary does not necessarily mean easy to understand. So 
So it means that you require no or very little specific background knowledge of, on the subject, only an infinite amount of intelligence to understand it. Luckily, this book, I hope, does not require an intel- infinite amount of intelligence because we certainly do not have that. Uh, but we've, we've tried to uh, use whatever little intelligence we have to express these ideas that we find very cool and, and uh, bring them together, the wonder of science and brain function, and also then the excitement of racing and uh, amalgamate them into a, into a whole that would be fun to read. I don't know about you, Jim, but reading through this book, it kind of really got me thinking about this idea of that kind of super soldier competitor that pops up once, you know, we always say once in a generation, so you'll get a Senna and a Schumacher, a Rossi and a Marquez will come along every so often in this book. Obviously, you can't, there's no blueprint for that. We know that. And you're very careful not to get too bogged down in things around talent or sort of otherworldly skills, because those are rather intangible. But they are part of the mystique of what we love about racing, I think, is that you will get this racer come along every so often, whether it's two or four wheels, and they just seem to be able to do things that their compatriots on the track don't seem to be able to emulate. Or, or B, or certainly not very often anyway. And it's, so it helps to kind of dig into that mystique a little bit, I think, and put some some ideas around how it is that certain people's brains function and how that then adapts and applies itself to the racing environment and the engineering aspects of it. Yeah, I would like to say, like, when you're talking about that, I, I, I have images of, like, Casey Stoner, Philip Island, and, and, like, <laughs> you kind of think, like, part of this is, like, when we talk about extreme talent and those one-offs, like the, the book is, is the, the emotion. It, we, it is written with emotion, you know. Like we, we get excited about seeing the top riders and the top drivers do what they do, and that kind of mystique is what inspires you to investigate um, and to build that foundation for, for hopefully for, for others to build upon. Because of course, those extreme levels of ability and those sort of you know, the wonder kids and, and the, the, the mystique around it is something that's, that is, you know, infinitely fascinating. Um, and, and, and hopefully with this book, you can kind of get an appreciation for the base level skill. It's, it's not just base level. I mean, it's, you know, we're talking high level elite racing drivers or riders um, that the, the, then you can sort of hypothesize what really makes someone extra special and, and what makes someone not quite extra special. And that's something that you're always you're always tackling with, you know, I remember back in the day, you know, the, the, the Rossi, I'd always go to Stone is that kind of that, that point, I think, because for me, he was that kind of rider that, because I was a big Rossi fan, but Stoner was, was that bit where you're going, oh, what's, oh, hey, what's going on here? This Ducati's not supposed to be that good, is it? Um, This is 07, and like, and that was one of my first experiences of like, oh, he's got a bit of something otherworldly here. Um. So we're definitely inspired by those sorts of things. They are they're, they're sort of sprinkled in there because they give they're like the touch points that we all look to, you know, to keep mm. us inspired. You know, Senna and whatever, um, or even like even like James Stewart in Super. And I'm I'm trying to boost up my bike credentials here because I'm on a motorbike podcast and I don't want the, the listeners to you know, but I, I, I do watch bikes. But, you know, like James Stewart is another one in Supercross. Those bits where you just like, you know, it's like you just sit there with you know your mouth aghast. So yeah. It is, it's an interesting subject and, and the, those top riders, it's like music, you know, if you listen to something that's really good and you get, you know, goosebumps, you know, those give that that's part of the process of then investigating, well, actually, 
what what is the mechanics of music if we if what is how does it really work why does it have this effect on humans you know so mm. so hopefully that comes across in the the actual literature that we that we put out that we are very we, we are just as excited about the the truly special talents but of course you need that elementary let's build it let's 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 get this thing built with good foundations and then it, we can we can hypothesize beyond that if there's any yeah. consolation alan i'm a child of the 80s so i was very much uh your PK, Mansell, Senna, Prost uh, guy mm. growing up. That was kind of where I cut my teeth. Bike racing came a bit later for me. I've just literally watched, I think I watched the 82 to 86 seasons on YouTube. So I've, I've just been relearning that era. Mm. Very interesting, really interesting like to, to go back on that era and, and you sort of re-educate yourself, you know. So I've just got two straight going by. <laughs> I've got a moped lives near me and I've taken the silencer off. So every now and again, I get this. Two straight, as you can tell, I'm a two straight fan. So, just um, a side note for any Motopod listeners that do like their old Formula One. There's a guy posting on YouTube called Big Zeddy. I don't know if that's the guy you've been watching, but he's diligently yes. posting all of the '80s and '90s stuff at the moment, and it's fantastic to go back and look at some of that stuff. So, um, but it kind of got me to wondering a little bit about the comparison between, I'll say, drivers, but again, this this applies equally to riders. The comparison between people of yesteryear as compared with the modern bunch. So, for example, in the olden days, you might, might well, you certainly had very dangerous, often quite long tracks, which you didn't get a lot of chance to practice them, as compared with, say, the modern day world, where you have guys hammering around on sims all the time. And they're very different skill sets. And the way that the cognitive function reacts to that and how you kind of build, I think you call it the mental movie, have you, can you comment on that a little bit? Because that was a really interesting kind of thought that came out of this for me. Yeah, the 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 nature of the sport, of course, changes over the decades, and and uh, what specific uh, skills or or aspects of personality or 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 kind of emotional regulation you require uh, change, which you alluded to. So so if you're thinking about Moss and and uh, Fangio and Castellotti and those guys on guys on the Millemilia, then it was like 10, 10, 11, 12 hours of of ra- ra- racing in the heat. I mean, no, I don't know how much fluid. They, they, yeah, they had like some, somebody would present them uh, in the Mercedes team. They would present them with with some snacks and and drinks at the stops. But no, no drinking during during the run, and of, and of course, totally open cockpit and open open helmet, and the road lined with with people and and uh, telephone poles and and uh, houses and and whatnot with cross ply tires in in cars <laughs> cars which by modern standards do do not have really brakes as such. So so the the requirement in terms of of the uh, mental side of it, uh, when you take in, into account all, all, all the mental aspects, the emotional and, and personality and, and, and stamina. And so and it, it was quite, quite, quite uh, different if you compare it then to circuit racing uh, in, in cars. Uh, in motorcycles, you of course have, have still the TT, which, uh, which has gone the other way. So the machines just get faster and faster and faster and it gets crazier. So, 
So, so the development is quite kind of in the in the other direction there. But uh, yeah, each each um, uh, era presents specific kinds of uh, challenges, uh, emotional challenges or cognitive challenges, because it, when when everybody is banging around in sims and analyzing all the de- telemetry data to the nth degree, then you also have to do that to a higher level to beat the other guy. So you have to learn these specific skills and, and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, like really hard always to win because the skill sets differ, but, but uh, everybody is le- learning the new skill sets if you if you see what I mean so so the the eras cannot really be compared in terms of um, of the uh, physical requirements if you will but then again the the fundamental requirement of doing the things others are doing but to a higher standard and sometimes then some genius coming along and doing a new thing that is better than the old ones uh, which is the mysterious part, and which which we don't don't really really understand how, where where the creativity and the and the mystery of of somebody just like like we say taking it to another level where where, where that comes from is 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 still a mystery and kind of nice nice that some things remain so. Yeah, it's part of the romance of the sport, isn't it? I and, guess. So. My thing has always been this: the difference of eras. My contention is you can't compare one era to another era fairly. But I do believe that you can take a Sterling Moss and put him in, say, Max Verstappen's Red Bull today, and he will be just as fast. My reasoning for this is that in the Mille Mille, as an example, we'll use that. Moss has got to use, say, 70% of his mind capacity is focused on driving of the car. 10% may be focused on listening to something that may be going wrong with the car. 10% listening to his co-driver talk about where they're going. And another 10% is looking out for the, for the weird object that may be there, the, the car, the cow, person, whatever it may be. So he only gets to use 70% of the capacity of what he has to race the car. But if you put him in the Red Bull today, he doesn't have to use 10% to focus on things that may or may not be on the track. He maybe only has to use 5%. He can, doesn't have to worry about the car failing him or listening for that ticking time bomb in the car. So he gets another 10% back. So he gets to focus maybe 95% on driving the car, finding his marks and racing that car. Is, is that fair? Am I close at all? Um, I can I'll jump in. I, I, I'll take and expand on the, the uh, theory of sort of percentages. Um, I, I, the, the, the brain, the brain is, is more complex than that in terms of seeing it in, in a way of, of, of seeing it like a 70%, 10%, 20%, because it's, it's a hugely complex system that's interacting in this very particular manner. And, and Otto can expand on that in more detail. I think that the theory of, it's very it's fraught with danger comparing eras because um, the the inherent competition is I would say is, is a lot higher now um, because Sterling Moss if you take Max Verstappen raced carts since he was eight years old 
Um, he, he's, he's racing every weekend. Now, there is, there is um, some interesting theories about over-specialisation at a young age doesn't necess necessarily equate to um, uh, results later on at an elite professional level. Um, however, the, the level that Max Verstappen was racing at at 12, 13 and 14 was like so high. Um, he won the KZ World Championship uh, which is the highest at the time, highest karting championship in the world at 14, beating some of the best kart drivers in the world. And, and the listeners might be might not be familiar with karting, but he's he he beat genuine professional drivers. It karting and, and, and car racing has this weird um symbiotic um symbiosis that's a so Max was racing in that environment from a young age and and Sterling wasn't and it's it's hard to compare is because you can only compete who you were up against at the time. Um, the, the reality is, in, in my view, Sterling probably wouldn't be able to get up to speed and compete at Max's level. But at the same time, if you took Max and took him back in time and said, you're not starting racing until you're at the age that Sterling started racing and you're not going to get the opportunity to do all of that, then he would probably be at Sterling's level back then it, it's, it's 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 great to compare eras um but the nature of racing especially over the last 30 40 years especially with the junior level competitions when really it, it accelerated in the late 80s when cadet karting become a thing so that was when kids could start racing at like 8 to 12 especially in the uk and europe where where f1 is and, and, and car racing and, and bike racing as well is so heavily focused but the competition level at that young age is so high. Um, so we, if we're looking at, if you took Max and you sent him back to, to Sterling's time, I think people would be surprised just how good um, someone like Max is. Um, so it is Fort with Danger, but if Otto can expand on the idea of, of thinking of, thinking about percentages and, and brain capacity, because he, he'll be able to explain it better than I. Uh, uh... Yeah, can you compare eras? Well, uh, empirically you can't. So there's no way of running the experiment mm. and and getting the data. So so comparing uh, eras is is an e exercise in in just spe speculating theoretically, uh, which is fun and and which is which is, which is part of the. Uh, salt of, of it all and that's, that's why it's also a perpetual uh, topic down the decades so people have always been debating debating this so so yeah you, you can't do of course physically at least until we get time travel these kinds of experiments where you would actually transport a person uh, from another era to, to another car maybe if you if you if you were able to analyze the requirements of, of different sub-disciplines or different domains, and then you take one person from one, one domain, you could do some kind of experiment uh, the theoretically, but in practice, no, because you cannot put a person for scientific purposes uh, to the process of doing all the things you need to do to become really, really good at something. It takes years and years and years so, so you're never going to be able to uh, to uh, assess this question 
experimentally. And that, that, that goes back to also to the question of, of talent and, and the nature and nurture. So exactly the same problem arises there. You can't run the experiment of selecting randomly people with different genetic makeup and then putting them through the kind of upbringing that Max Verstappen, for example, had or Sterling Moss had. So you, you cannot... Uh, can, cannot uh, uh, re recreate the uh, the uh, the uh, uh, developmental uh, pro processes. Uh, you, you can uh, and and this is kind of fun. So so in the draft phase, there was an idea of having a fourth section to the book. So we have one section on what's the skill sets, what kinds of skills are required at the basic level of the racing driver of all disciplines across all eras, the fundamentals that, that Alan alluded to. Then the second part is, well, what kinds of cognitive processes would be required to tackle these skills? And then the third part is, well, how would the brain do those cognitive processes? And there was an idea of having a fourth part. Well, where do those skills then come from? How do they develop? How does the brain morph itself into a racer's brain? What's the, what's the, uh, uh, what, 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 how, how do genes work? How do genes shape uh, the human, human brain when, with, with experience? But that would have expanded it even more because then we would have needed to start from the element, ele elements of yet another uh, field. We, have, we would have had to be, bring genetics and all, all that there. So it would have been like a 500 page book. So it would not have worked. But uh, yeah, the, the, um, the, the long and short of it is uh, you can't, can't compare eras experimentally you can't really compare two drivers uh, experimentally. Uh, you can do it uh, like uh, in your mind. Uh, the way you just did it by, by like saying that, okay, let's assume the driver or rider has 100% of total mental capacity. Uh, and then they allocate some percentages of this mental capacity uh, to different aspects of, of the uh, driving task or the, or the problem at hand, uh, uh, which, which is, which is a, often quite, quite useful way to think, think about it. And like, for example, in, in Keith Code's book, he, he, he talks about the uh, $10 of attention that you allocate to different things in the, in the racing environment. So that's a, that, that's a useful approximation uh, in many uh, contexts, but I don't think uh, here uh, it necessarily works because when you start thinking about uh, the different requirements of the different vehicles or different eras, is not just one, um, how should I put it, is not just uh, one uh, homogeneous lump of brain capacity, one homogeneous lump of ability that you have in your mind that you can freely distribute, 5% uh, here, 7% there, and so on. So, so uh, the dif different skill sets are kind of uh, somewhat independently developed and not uh, freely 
exchangeable. So there's no single currency or commodity uh, fundamentally in the brain of, of mental capacity that you could measure on, on a single scale. So, so that a person, person has 100% of capacity which they can allocate to whatever things they do. do. So uh, some, uh, some, uh, some tasks you can do in parallel and they don't use the same cur currency at all. You can have a conversation on the phone and drive a car at the same time and they, they can run without interrupting one another because they don't run on the same currency. One runs on one type of processes, one runs on one part of the brain, if you will, and the other runs on another. Uh, and much of the time they don't have to communicate with one another. And so there is no uh, single set of mental capacity that you are distributing to the same tasks. Uh, so, so that if you initiate one task, it would necessarily take away from the other, at least not, not, in, not in proportion. So, so, uh, uh, so yeah, I get your, get, get your, get your argument, uh, but I would uh, raise the, the uh, uh, difficulty of how do you actually then measure mental capacity or how do, how do you, uh, define how much one person has of it and another another doesn't and uh, there are no no uh, mm, tests or, or ways to put uh, precise numbers on it one interesting modern phenomenon where the if you like the old world and the new world do collide uh, and that as you've mentioned i think otto already is the tt or the mm -hmm. the road racing scene and I'm always interested in the rather rare, there are a few, and we can mention a couple now, but the rather rare occurrences of where you will have a, a rider who is very successful on the roads with all of the different skill sets and kind of cognitive function that that environment demands in terms of risk in particular, and those, and those same riders who can transfer those skills to the modern safe, let's call it inverted commas, but um, track-based racing so if you take somebody like Peter Hickman as a as a very very good example of this he's very successful on the short circuits but he's super successful on the roads as well and it's almost like a collision of the old style and the new style come together at one point and there are not many people like him there are a few and we could name a few but I, I just wondered if there's something particular in terms of people like that that can manage those two very very different environments and be successful Yes, Sterling Moss, of course, was was very versatile. And uh, if you think in the car world, if you compare rallying and and circuit racing, then there's uh, like uh, uh, rallying done is done on the open roads. Of course, rally drive rally cars are, are way way safer than than racing motorcycles to take on a pub public road at speed, especially now that they are they are uh, space space frame cars. Uh, this this year, uh, but but in terms of the the question of going into these different cognitive processes that you need, so there, there there's there's a similarity there. That okay, you got one set of skills that you need in circuit racing where you can repeat the lap, and you need to find the very small uh, incremental uh, 
uh, improvements in each corner. This is something that Alan can, of, of course, ex expand on and also then adapt to the change in the car and the tires as the tires wear and the car gets lighter and uh, and the track gets rubbered in. So all, all these changes have to be uh, adopted into your into your kind of uh, mental movie or plan in in how the how the lap is going to run and you get this repetition and you are ch chasing very small uh, margins and uh, and uh, there there are kind of very few surprises now that when you go to the open road uh, the uncertainty level goes up the risk level goes up, up as well so the magnitude of of the accident if you do have one goes up and that that's part of the emotional uh, risk aspect of how do you deal with, with 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 that possibility of things going really sideways really quickly uh, but also also irrespective of the consequences of error uh, the uh, uncertainty in what what you're supposed to be doing next goes up as well especially in rallying where you you are not allowed to take the uh, take the route multiple uh, times at most twice twice a day if, if the same uh, same uh, stages run run in the morning and the afternoon. So so you are having then to adapt to this uh, uncertainty and and uh, kind of read the road ahead. Uh, like what, what, what's the grip level going to be like and, and uh, how based on what you see the sheen of the tarmac and based also on how the previous corners uh, felt what's the, what's the current, current grip level plus whatever the, the, uh, the uh, co-driver is telling from the, from the ice crew or, or the, or the pre-rec crew. So you are, you are putting all this information together which is not there or that is not such a big uh, differentiator in circuit racing. So th th these are the kinds of complementary skill sets of of the kind of basic information processing that are that are different between the two disciplines. And then there are some people like Sebastian Loeb who's like super good in whatever he does and 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 and, and weirdly good in in reading the road, but also pretty handy handy in in uh, closed circuit racing at, at, at Le Mans. So, so yeah, how, why, why are there these, some individuals that just get so many different disciplines and, and how do they absorb the information efficiently enough to, to make a go at it is, is a, yeah, some, something I would really like to understand better, but mm. I, no, nobody does at this moment. I suppose, Alan, it's one of the slightly, uh, what's the right word? Not disappointing, that's the wrong word. But one of the things I like about the more historical aspects of the sport, certainly when you look at car racing, at least, was the sheer variety of disciplines that drivers would take part in in the olden days. I mean, you know, we've all seen the pictures of Jim Clark hanging, hammering around Alton Park in the Lotus Cortina on two wheels and stuff. Oh, and don't, then, don't get me started, man. I start talking following about following day being a, you know, <laughs> and a all the old Grand Prix Yeah, I just I love the old stuff. Like I get I get as a word, and I forget what it's called, but it's um, agnosia. Is it agnosia? It's like um, it, I think that's the word. You've got a nostalgia for a time that you didn't live. Okay, like, I get it heavy. You know, 
especially the old the old karting stuff. Like as you can see behind me, I've got kart engines everywhere. Like um, the, the crossover thing is interesting on the on the TT thing. Um, obviously, like you got you got different ends of the spectrum. Like I'm a big Michael Dunlop fan because um, I just like his his just riding style. He's just off the wall. I don't know how good he is on the short circuit stuff. Um, uh, I, I guess I guess that the the subject there is is the question that you have to ask yourself is when you do the TT, those riders are making a, a very fundamental question about participating in it. So it goes beyond, it almost, it, like it's hard to talk talk about it from a cognitive perspective because they're assessing the situation and the question is, is this worth it for me? And the, the question that you ask yourself is, Hickman can do both. He, he holds how, out like like Ratlick, uh, outright lap record, doesn't he, Hickman? He does, he does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like one, three, four, one, three, five, something crazy. And the question I ask myself is: is is he just a good rider that accepts the risk? And if you took the rest of the the you know maybe Jonathan Ray or, or I mean I'm, I'm just more in the superbike realm. Or, I don't. I haven't watched British superbikes for a, for a while. Um, my my era was the Hodgson Walker era, and after that, I sort of lost track. Um, which is quite a long time ago now. Yeah, um, 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, I know, it's scary. Um, but it could be that, you know, if you if, if a lot more of the top short circuit riders thought the TT was worth it, would would those guys be just as quick as Hickman? Um, you know, so it's, it's a difficult question. It, it probably, it boils down to their assessment of risk. And that's the whole science in itself, you know, in terms of understanding thrill seekers and... You know, you know, people think like adrenaline junkies. It's all about getting the adrenaline and everything. But it's it, it, often the case, isn't that they just they they like the the challenge. It's like a challenge, and the higher the stakes, the, the greater the challenge. So, um, it's it's a question that it's impossible to answer to a certain degree because you're 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 left with a lot of unknowns. What happens if Mark Marquez did the TT? You know, what would happen then? Would would he be able to do it fast? Is his riding style? Could he could he do it? I mean, I don't know. But um, what what the question is, could Mark Marquez fundamentally, if he assessed the risk and decided he would do it, what would the speed then be? So it's it's a complex question to answer. I'm, I, as I said, I'm, Otto is a cognitive scientist. I'm I, I'm not so. Um, but I, I think fundamentally that the, the barrier to entry to the TT is not your skill. It's whether you assess risk in a particular manner. And whether mm. there's a subsection of people that um, I like that. I mean, I, I always I always get kind of frustrated when people and I'm not I'm, I'm diverting a little bit here, but it, it sort of strays onto the point um, where people talk about the TT being too dangerous and, and the, the risk to life. And, and I always think it's not the TT that's dangerous. It's the people that do it. <laughs> if there wasn't the TT and if you took that subset of people that did. I'm pretty sure if you took the subset of people that are likely to do the TT, they probably have higher than average rates of death. So whatever they'll find there, they'll find a way to do something. And I think it, it, it's hard to say whether it's adaptability with Hickman or whether it's his assessment of risk is just fundamentally different to all the other top short circuit riders, you know, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, I know, I know Foggy, Foggy did the TT, didn't he? And, and um, so, so, 
you know, I, I just personally, it's, it's, it's such a difficult thing to, to, to sort of break down in terms of comparing them. Why, why would some TT, some TT riders go short circuit and they're not that quick, but, but that's not really the, the game at the TT. So it's, it's hard to, it's hard to really break down. No, um, certainly. I'm sorry if you listen to someone, it's not, a, it's hard, hard to get a difficult, a, a real straight answer, but I think it, the roots of it in just a, 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 in a, in a, in a more, risk assessment scenario that these riders seem to have and if you get a rider who's top quality on a short circuit and their risk assessment is the same as Hickman maybe you'd see more just as good riders in the short circuit scene come over but the way the game works like as you refer to the old days and the professional nature of racing has very much changed over the years and, and it's more it's more like drivers have been funneled into their niche a lot harder now just for professional reasons um and, and it, it's become so difficult for them to break out i mean the last guy really like i in the in the epilogue i talk about schumacher racing at the scusa supernats in um, las vegas for your listeners the scusa supernats is like this big one-off event in las vegas in the in, in a casino car park and it's a kart race and um karting still we, we're still holding on to two strokes that dominates the scene and i'm very proud of that we don't talk about that enough um we haven't fought, we haven't fallen for the four stroke thing and um anyway so schumacher raced that and this is like super quick cart, so it's super dangerous like so many accidents people have are huge so he was from that last he was from that era that for some reason he had the professional um room to just do different things because he did bikes as well and that's what he, he hurt his neck doing bikes and yeah he he did the world kind championship in 2001 uh at his home track he entered so, like, it's just nowadays, it's, yeah, you don't see it so much. And it's a shame because for, for, for people like Otto and I, that, that observing people in different environments is always going to be instinctively interesting because you're always looking for, you're trying to, science is, science is like, it's all about experiments and, and, and repeatability. But there's an also, you need ideas to test. So when you see drivers in different environments, you get to see whether there's this transfer and, and whether people may is is there a, like the question I always have is there is there a fundamental model um, purely riffing here like that 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 is transferred from different vehicles like if you watch it could be just a bias from your viewing but if you watch Bercy ninety three which was the indoor kart race and you had Senna and Prost and Prost pretty much drove a kart like he does an F one kart and Senna drove his kart in the way that you'd see him drive an F I mean not quite as dramatic in an F one car but you know he was more aggressive and it, it was kind of like that's kind of things very interesting um but the tt is harder to understand just because the risk the risk is so high how do you experiment with that you know how do you really 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 nail it down but um i hope yeah. you know that kind of makes sense one thing that the book does sort of do very well i think is is always beware making generalist comments because there's always these things are always very complicated when you start to really get into that's, the detail that's, of them. That's the difficulty. That's the difficulty. Um, I always found it's like it's like it's like a meme where you, where you get like a thing that someone goes, well, it's actually it's a lot more complicated than that. And that's always <laughs> the, the thing where it's like, ah, oh, I want a I want a solid answer. I want something that we, you know, like humans, we do we like we like things that are solid and cohesive. And when things are a bit more uncertain, um, you know. But I mean, the, the book we, we hope we've we've created something that's something that you can grip hold of. It's not just a wander into hypothetical lands and it's all too complicated to ever understand it's not like that at all but um 
yeah it's, it's always that, that's that's kind of reason part of the reason that is that i that i got spoke speaking to otto was i found myself saying hmm someone asked me a question i'm like yeah but it's a bit more complicated than that <laughs> and it's like a bit more complicated than that so part of reaching out to otto and this was a number of years now it was, it was my attempt to kind of gain gain some certainty in, in the realm of, of driving you know um mm. so yeah i know i know yeah i just yeah I know we, we, we keep sort of drifting off topic a little bit, but... I, yeah, bring back online, because I can drift off topic very quickly. Well, I was just going to say, just a very quick aside, because I know Jim wants to ask a question, but um, I'm always sort of captivated and amazed by, you know, when, say, Grumpy Drivers of the late 40s, when it really got going again, and the 50s were kind of questioned about the absurd risks they appeared to be taking. Many of them were able to kind of retort to say, well, not compared with dogfighting and a spitfire at, 20,000 feet or being a tail gunner in a in a bomber you know so risk is always a relative thing I suppose yeah, isn't it it's, it's just our, our perception of it has shifted dramatically over uh, that sort of 60 or 70 year period I, I think of it yeah it's, it's, it's changed it's changed dramatically I think humans are will become a lot more sensitive I think it's like a uh, this is diversion but the thing is what I'm not anti-safety it's just an observation but one it's like in anything um if you fix one big problem big safety issue then the next the next thing in line becomes the new big safety issue and then the next thing in line we the people don't become less passionate just because problems are being solved you know they they just it just their focus moves on to, to another thing so you know it goes from being super high dangerous in the 50s and people are like this is really dangerous and then 60s um so so yeah it is it's getting a lot safer but our humans are, are kind of peculiar <laughs> you know yeah so I'll, I'll ask my tt question because I, I find the tt fascinating but i want to hopefully i tie this to the book properly and it's the idea of you talk about chunks in the book and how you take things in chunks and you learn things in a chunk mm-hmm. and i got i was like when i read it the first thing that came to my mind was oh my gosh this is why it takes a guy at the tt three plus years to be fast because there's 37 and three quarters mile over what is it rich couple hundred turns Mm. that if you watch an onboard video of more than 10 turns look like exactly like another 10 turns except for one may have a tree at the at the apex one's got something else you can hit so i kind of want to understand this idea of chunking and, and how that works so uh, Otto, I think maybe you might be the best for that one. Yeah, great, great question. So, so chunking uh, is, is a concept that comes from research on chess, and uh, it's kind of the fundamental theory for the past forty years on on generally how human experts uh, learn uh, patterns or learn problem solving in their respective domains. It hasn't been uh, uh, applied to the problem of, of racing or even driving to date, which is to me quite quite amazing. So 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 I, I thought that okay, well I, I might as well do, do it then myself. So the idea of chunking is that or the, or the origin of it is that when, when you show a highly skilled uh, grandmaster level chess player a chess board or a picture of a chess board just for a couple of seconds, and then you ask them to put the pieces back on the board. They will be able to do it. They might miss uh, a piece or two here and there, but generally they are able to re- put all the pieces back in their correct correct positions. 
uh, and a novice or, or a less skilled chess player cannot do this. Uh, now, the, the uh, researchers who started doing these experiments in the 60s and the 70s, they noticed that they were not putting the pieces on the, uh, on the board randomly. They were putting them in chunks, just literally chunks. They would take a chunk of pieces from the box and put them on, on, the, on the chessboard and then take another chunk of pieces and put them there. And these chunks uh, were sub-patterns on the board. So the whole board uh, configuration is kind of a chunk, but then it contains this smaller pattern of like a king and, and, and a rook protected by a couple of soldiers uh, or pawn, what are they, pawns in, in front of them. Yeah, so, so th this kind of hierarchical analysis of how the meaningful relationships in the scene get built together, that, that, that's, that's started with chunking. Uh, with with chess, I mean, and now if you apply this to the problem of racing, then you could have a bend as a chunk, or at, even at a higher level, you could have the whole racetrack, at least a small racetrack as a chunk, which contains smaller chunks, which contains smaller chunks, all the way down to the basic elements, the pieces in chess, or maybe reference points, or, or in 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 the uh, visual scene of the racing driver. And, uh, and as you said, the bigger the circuit, the longer it takes to learn because the fundamental part of brain design is that uh, memory recall is cheap and fast. Once you've built up your database into your head, you can recall it like that and encode the seed and know what's there and, and uh, like see, see, see the forest from the trees if you're an expert very quickly, but to encode the chunks there in the first place, this, this is a slow process and you have to somehow build them uh, piece by piece, by piece uh, and, and learn the, the, uh, uh, what, what the, what, what the uh, uh, re relevant pieces on the board are as, as it were and how they are related. And uh, if you, if you, uh, Think of, of uh, uh, let, let's say let's say a, an oval track in in NASCAR or IndyCar racing. That's on the surface of it uh, quite a simple layout of tarmac. It's just two 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 bends or four four bends uh, slightly banked and, and connected by two straights. But then when you get down to it, the level of detail that you have to understand the track layout and the different lines and the way they affect your car is of course very, very nuanced. So you have to chunk, kind of chunk in into a very fine grain granular detail, this apparently simple piece of tarmac uh, to be able to beat the other guy, just to drive around at a reasonable pace. If you can treat it as very simple, but when you have to beat the other guys racing or the, around the same piece of real estate, you have to, uh, you have to uh, learn all the complexities and the nuance. You have to chunk the racetrack into tiny chunks. The other way around, if you compare a small, uh, uh, small circuit racetrack then to the TT or in car, car racing, the Norschleife, uh, 
something really big and complex with interconnected bends with with uh, changing cambers and of, often changing weather conditions, then uh, you, you are look, looking again at the complexity. You, you need a lot of junk chunks built into your memory to han handle it this time because there's just so many cor corners in it. Okay, and, and the time it takes you to get one chunk in, what, whatever it is, like it, it's on the order of se seconds to minutes, maybe. So, so to get uh, like tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of chunks into your memory to become an expert at something, that's going to take years. And that's what it takes to, to uh, develop mastery uh, in, in any field, in, including racing, because the chunking process has a certain speed that you can't really speed up. It's part of the capacity limitations of the brain, the speed at which you can encode new chunks. And that, 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 that's where uh, the time it takes you to learn information of a certain complexity uh, fundamentally comes from. I can't help now then, and, and this, is kind of, this is kind of established knowledge of the psychology of expertise and applied to racing. So we can understand things we know about racing and learning racetracks from this cognitive perspective. Uh, then you have, uh, if you ask the what if question, what if you want to extrapolate from this? What if you want to understand the, the uh, individual talent or, or genius of, of some, some drivers? Do some people have a better way of chunking racetracks, other people better ways of chunking foods, other people's better way of chunking chess, chess configurations, aptitude to develop, to pick up the right connections, pick up the right reference points and, and, and their relations to what you do must do physically on the bike. Th this we don't know. So uh, that, 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 that's one way to ask the question of where does talent come from? What kind of process could talent be? But it's a hypothetical question uh, no, nobody uh, knows because yeah, again, we come back to this, uh, uh, nobody knows quite how to test this experimentally yet. And because you are talking about a complicated thing, a really sophisticated piece of machinery, which is the human brain, the brain of the racing driver. Uh, if you ask the question, what if, you, you ask the question of what if you put Marquez on the TT? What if you uh, put, put two, two people with slightly different genetic makeup and ma ma try to make them into racing drivers? Uh, this kind of what if question, you can only answer it empirically with really, really complicated uh, systems. With a really, really complicated system like a human being, you just can't answer theoretically what if you put this creature into this environment? Always when you actually do the experiment, the humans are going to surprise you and do something that you didn't expect because they are complicated creatures and they're always going to be more complicated and fascinating than your theory. I might add on that as well quick, if that's okay. Um, yeah, go ahead, definitely. Um, the TT is one of the, the greatest feats of humans, I think. Um, but what's interesting is when we talk about the length of the TT, I mean, it, it sort of speaks to the idea of trunking is if I asked you to recall a lap of Donington 
then a lap of Silverstone, then a lap of Brands Hatch, then a lap of Laguna Seca, then a lap of Cadwell Park, then a lap of Paul Ricard or any of the famous circuits, you'll soon quickly have in your brain a theoretical if you if you you know if you you know all these tracks are a certain length of miles you're soon getting into much longer memory recall than the tt you know every rider has a bank of tracks that they can remember like without any problems at all um of course with the tt it's a one continuous lap so it, it feels like a really big feat of um human achievement but at the same time a lot of riders and a lot of drivers have a huge bank of tracks in their mind. You know, I, I can recall, and, and I'm just a, just an average punter, you know, you can recall hundreds of miles of laps, but you just, because you, 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 you're, you've got Silverstone in your head and Donington and Brands, but if you connect that suddenly, you've, even those three tracks alone, you know, you've got six minutes of, of lap like that. And it doesn't feel that difficult to think, you know, if I said, you know, Donington, you can just, you know, recall it like that. So it's, it's, it's not completely congruent with the notion of, 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 of chunking as such, but it's just to give you that idea that you, you, you have the potential. Like everybody has this potential for these, you know, quite amazing feats of, of memory. Hmm. That's interesting. Guess, Sorry, Rich. Well, as I say, we, well, guess what we need is for Dorna to, uh, in parallel with the MotoGP World Championship, uh, have a chess tournament going on so that we can figure out <laughs> the relative skill levels of these guys. It would be interesting. They do. Um, there's a bit of a chess club in F1 at the moment. Um, oh, Charles like, Leclerc yeah. is is uh, quite yeah. a chess player, I believe. Yeah. Hmm. Sorry, Jim. Yeah. No, what I was thinking is like that's like chunking thing. We would. I used to race some hair scrambles, and so it's through the woods, and you never see where it's going. You follow little arrows to get there, and you'd get done, and you'd race for two hours over this loop that might have been ten miles. You could come back and recall with amazing clarity every place that you had trouble, then every place that you went really fast through that you really thought was fun, it was the next thing you could recall with clarity. And it would slowly work its way down. And I never knew, I had no idea why until I read the book and I thought this is what was happening. So to me, that was really fascinating to, with, to pull back my own personal experiences of what I could and couldn't remember about certain things and understand what was happening. So I, again, this book was really fascinating to me just because of, you know, the average punter, as you say, Alan, you know, doing your thing and you what you can and can't remember at times is fascinating. It's, it's amazing. Like if you take just an average club rider and it's like we, we, we marvel at the skills of some of the best uh, riders in the world because it's a bias that we have. But every, so many people are achieving these amazing things. You know, so, you know, it's, it's sometimes good to, to recognize that, you know, like, mm -hmm. like I said, like with the thing of saying you can remember hundreds of miles of racetrack in your brain. And a lot of people do this um and they don't it just passes them by they just have no idea and if you said to someone you've got to learn a hundred mile course they'd be like i can't do that and then you could literally say remember silverstone donington brands da, 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 and they'll have it like in five minutes they're like oh i actually already have it you know so it's just an interesting you know sort of caveat to it i just thought it'd be nice you know for people listening to feel like they're they actually you know they are doing something really cool you know at the end of the day that's i'm really into getting people into motorsport fundamentally um so it's always nice to remind people what they're doing, even at a club level, is, is pretty amazing. Otto, I, I hope I haven't got this wrong, but I was kind of quite fascinated. I think it was in chapter six where you start to take the sort of the first look into the brain and this idea of the enormous untapped potential that the brain has at any point in time and the capability to learn 
much of which I suppose is, is redundant capacity, perhaps. Is, would that be the right way to phrase it, perhaps? Because it got me to wondering at what point is there a tipping point at which you can chunk this information, you can continue to learn and take on this experience, but at a certain point in terms of the physi physiology of the human body, that gets tempered by age and injuries and so on. I was thinking in particular of somebody like Valentino Rossi, who was as fast at the end of his career on two wheels as he was at the beginning. In fact, if anything, he was faster, which was partly to do with machinery improvements, it's true. But he had adapted his style and he had learned new ways to ride the bike right throughout his career. But in the end, age kind of caught up with him. And, and so that kind of untapped ongoing potential of his brain function kind of came to an end because his body just couldn't keep up with it anymore. Well, uh, so, so if we think of the, the capacity limits of the, of the brain, so, so uh, the capacity limit of memory to absorb new information, uh, which is a slow process, it has a kind of a, a capacity limit in terms of the rate of new information you can take in into this, this kind of memory that we are talking about here. Uh, but there is no capacity limit that is known uh, in terms of how much stuff you can put there. It's, it's not like, okay, you've learned the TT and you learned Nordschleife, there's no, no room for Paul Ricard anymore. So it, do <laughs> it doesn't work, work, work like that. So, so when you are le learning new places or, or, or new skills, uh, as far as we can tell, uh, there, there is no uh, limit on, on how much uh, stuff you can uh, put into the uh, location and skill memory in the brain. Of course, there has to be a physical limit because the brain is of a finite size. So it, it only has, has so many molecules, but there, there are so many brain cells that, that uh, give, given that you're only likely to live about 100 years, give or take, 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 take something, uh, then you're not going to run out of, out of ner nerve cells in, in terms of holding information in, in storage. Uh, so, so the capacity limit of, of long-term memory is, is unlimited. The capacity of short-term memory or attention, how much you can hold in your mind at any one moment, that is very limited. And that doesn't seem to be, be something that changes a whole lot as you gain experience. So you can only keep in, in, keep in mind active out of all the hundreds of thousands of chunks that you have stored in your memory, maybe three, according to some theories, just one at a time. Uh, and and what, what allows you then to, to uh, drive the, the, the uh, Paul Ricard circuit or the oval track or write the TT faster than others from the perspective of what memory capacities you need is that you are able to put more stuff into that one chunk of yours. So the, the chunks are hierarchical in, in the way that, that uh, you can only hold one chunk in memory at a time but the chunks of the expert driver or the elite rider are bigger than the chunks of the novice. So nobody knows in, in racing how you count the size of a chunk, really. But let's say you count, count it in terms of, of the reference points that you have for a particular view of a particular 
circuits. So you you are right right riding into into a particular corner on a, on a particular track that you know well. So that there are some reference points or or familiar shapes to the land, landscape or whatever it is the uh, ge geometry that that immediately tells you where you are. So so that single chunk of the expert will be more detailed. It will hold more information uh, in. It, uh, available for immediate fast recall than than the uh, uh, beginner rider or driver who might have just like a couple of salient. Okay, here's my breaking point, and that's my apex. And what happens after that is kind of hazy. Uh, so, and 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 the uh, and the ex expert will have also limited capacity to hold just that one, two, or three chunks at a time. But their chunks will be rich and more complex. Uh, because they have been chunking the information for a long time. So you are building new chunks, but also bigger chunks and building chunks out of chunks into your memory for fast, fast recall. And uh, again, then going out on a limb and, and uh, extrapolating to things we don't really know, then that's possibly part of the reason why a long track is so much harder to learn uh, than than a short track or it's it's uh, okay this is an experiment to do uh, I and and uh, and, and uh, uh, to test empirically is it in fact easier to f to learn to a certain level of performance five short tracks than one long one so if you add up the let, let's say you are able to drive the five five short laps within two tenths of a second. Of, uh, each lap to one another, and you add those up, so you are able to uh, lap this uh, collection of five tracks to within one plus minus one, one second. Okay, so then you take one track that is five times as long. Are you going to be able to lap that to within plus minus one second, or are the margins going to be lot big, bigger, the mar mar margin of variation is going to be bigger, which means that the longer track will be harder to uh, harder to learn. This experiment, as far as I know, has never been done. But suppose the uh, result was that it is indeed harder to learn to a certain uh, level, certain uh, certain amount of tenths per kilometer, uh, the amount of tenths per, kil per kilometer that your variation is is smaller when you're aggregating many small tracks than one big one. That could be because the one big track has to be inside your memory, one big chunk. So it's not Paul Ricard, Silverstone and, and, and Cadwell Park. It's one hole that has to be recalled from the top down so, so that you are able to do the recall on time. That's, yeah. uh, that's my uh, kind of, uh, that's, that's my theory on it. This is not fact, this is, this is uh, my guess on how it might work. But as I said, first you have to establish whether or not this, uh, this, uh, this holds experimentally, whether, whether there's actually a phenomenon for the theory to explain. Yeah, interesting. Uh, so another question I had kind of goes with this chunking is the idea of patterns that are, comes out of it. And it was like, we went to, as MotoGP, we went to Mandalika for the very first time. And when I first saw the track, kind of some helicopter shots of it, I looked at the last turn and I'm like, oh, that reminds me of like mid-Ohio at the carousel or it reminds me a bit of Argentina at the end. 
And then in the book, I'm reading through the book like the next day. It was very weird. It was like, oh, hey, people look at, recognize this pattern. Look, oh, this turn has a similar shape or a similar approach as to something that I've done previously. So I should be able to go so far or so deep before I have to break or turn in. That part was really fascinating to me is to what's how the brain relates that part of that. Yeah, like in chess, uh, the exact positions never repeat. So you can't learn to play chess by learning what do you do in this mid-game situation. That situation has never occurred in the thousands of years that people have been playing chess because there are so many variations of different chess positions that the exact position you are going to uh, face is not something you will have or anybody in the history has encountered. Early game, of course, you start from the same position, but mid-game is always different. So what you have to have in memory is not the exact positions. You have to have some patterns that recur in slightly different variations of the same theme uh, in, in different uh, chess uh, games. And the same would then apply to corners. You have some variation of the geometrical theme uh, that, that, that you recognize. You recognize, okay, these distances and this amount of turning and th this, this amount of, of uh, banking is a similar uh, collection of features, a, a similar collection of uh, references as something I have seen before. And therefore, you are able to generalize from past experience. And that, that's one of the mysterious, wonderful, uh, amazing things that the brain can do, that when you learn from experience, you don't just learn to do things you've done before. You don't let, just learn to react to things you have seen before, you learn something that allows you to react uh, or behave adaptively in new situations if they are similar in, in some way to your brain. If your brain is able to treat them as similar to something you've experienced before, then you're able to do, do a clever thing in, in that new situation. This is something that machines or AI has a really hard time at the moment. So they are much more dependent on learning specific situations and what you are doing in this situation and get, getting them to generalize uh, in, in the way that the human brain does uh, automatically. I, and I'm not talking experts, I'm talking just about every, everyday experience, ex experience uh, is, is some, something that's, that's uh, uh, still uh, profoundly not understood. Uh, so, so, so that 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 flexibility, that that ability to uh, spot patterns and similarities, that, that that's one of the uh, may, major cognitive drivers of of human performance in in any field, and that makes the experience then domain specific. So, so when when you learn the nuances of of tarmac or different surfaces in in, in rallying or whatever, then you build this knowledge base of information in that domain. It doesn't make you any better chess player and, and being better at chess doesn't make you a faster driver uh, because you are learning different patterns. Patterns You are learning uh, different uh, 
different domains. Domain uh, expertise tends to be very, very domain specific. There's surprisingly little transfer or or like uh, uh, information that's fully generalizable across a whole bunch of disciplines. So if if you want to be really, really good at something, you have to do that thing, and then you're able to do this miracle of generalization within that field. Very interesting. When you were talking about in the book about the kind of, I think, the predictive brain, the thing that immediately came into my mind was Mark Marquez and his unerring ability to save crashes that nobody else crashes. Mm. And I was wondering if that was kind of a, a, a sort of a physical manifestation of that, where he's, I think you even use the term in the book, ahead of ahead of what the bike is going to do, or it could be a car if you're going to go into a slide or a spin or whatever. Because Mark Marquez in particular has this ability to save crashes that most other people would actually crash as a result of the bike doing whatever it's going to do. And I, I guess that must be, in at least in part, the predictive aspects of, of his skill or, or his application of, of that knowledge that he's learned over so many years. Yeah, go, go. I, was, I was just thinking when you said that, I was just reminded of um, Edwards. Edwards is safe, that you made him famous for so long, and then Mark Marquez turns up, and it's like, I, he now gets like, um, I call it just extreme understeer. Yeah. He's, he's, he's changed He's changed front end front end slides to just extreme understeer for him. But yeah, Otto, Otto can expand yeah, on I that. I remember but, when we were doing doing the very very first draft outline of 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 uh, what the different chapters could be and we were we were sitting at the simulator center at the at the back room and and doodling this and i i, I was kind of like sketching okay here could be chapter three and this it could be this or that or that and then when you alan uh dug up your your uh your uh, lap laptop and you went like i have to show you this park marker save so so the, 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 look look at that okay that's a crash but he didn't crash and that's a crash but he didn't crash so actually uh that that was exactly the uh impetus of some of the of the uh, stuff we wrote about in in chapter five on on, on control so it came from there although we i i think in in the final edit we did not include that story uh, but it, it, it could have been in included because that's where it where, where it came from so there, there are all this yeah. yeah sorry i was just saying i was i'd find that fascinating in particular because what marquez has done is developed a, a new skill um and i know he isn't the first person to save front end slide but the repeatability of it is unique and that was something that was part of the inspiration of the book because um it was the Marquez era that was in the background of the, um, well, it was the Marquez era coming into the Verstappen era in F1 um, that was the background music of, of trying to understand the skill acquisition. And, and I guess on bikes, it's a lot easier to see when something happens that's a bit otherworldly. Um, and that that's one of it. I, I guess with, with motorbikes, in a sense, like, I, you know, that, you know, I have a real passion for bikes and I, because I can't ride them, you sort of, you, you go into it even harder somehow. Um, but that, 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 that front, the, the way that Marquez created a system to deal with front end slides that nobody else seems to be able to do because of the repeatability of it 
is something that yeah we it was in one of the early drafts of the book um, and it's interesting you, you bring it up because yeah it was there you know so you obviously sensed it just as a side observation one thing that has resulted from the marquez phenomena in that that regard is i think it's it's made other riders realize that they can at least try to save bikes when they slide like that and so we are starting to see more saves like that but as you say alan it's marquez was very has become very famous for this just by dint of how many times he's done it uh, it's interesting in bikes i think you have a great i think it's interesting just to revert back to comparing eras if you watch someone drive the 50s f1 car and you watch someone drive a 60s F1 car, you're not seeing a particularly high degree of innovation in what the drivers are doing compared to now. And there's a lot more movement generally in the cars, but not always. With motorbikes, and again, technology is a part driver. There's a kind of a technological improvement and the riders, the riding styles, you can see very quickly the development a lot easier. And, and, and I guess, I guess, in, in, in a certain way, the, 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 the book probably feels more comfortable in a, in a motorbike arena because there's a more generally, and this is a big generalisation, because the skill is so easy to see as a layman. Like if you see someone ride a bike, you don't need to have ridden a bike to go, I, that is just the craziest thing I've ever seen. And then you get these milestones of achievements. I don't know if it was, it wasn't Kenny Roberts. Who was the first? Who was the first guy to really start leaning off the bike and get the knee down? I think Roberts um, is generally credited with that. I'm not sure he was the first, but he was, was the bit, guy that really yeah, popularised it. Yeah, there's always it, that thing he? where the guy that makes it popular. It's like it was like I, as they say, talk about Black Sabbath. You know, whether, are they the first metal band? But you're <laughs> sure that 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 any band that came after Black Sabbath wasn't the first metal band. And it was like I guess with Roberts, he might not be the first, but you know that after him nobody else is the first guy so you have these huge milestones and i guess i don't I'm, and you can disagree with me stoner kind of it then introduced the era not post rossi era but that kind of well i guess mccoy maybe but that kind of aggressive australian style that came in and then it then marquez seemed to take it and then he there these real different milestones whereas in in car racing it's harder to to from a skill acquisition point of view and an understanding point of view especially when you're trying to communicate cognitive ideas when you have milestones like you do in bikes it is potentially a bit easier um and you know if you like you know like um jim clark smooth prost smooth button smooth you know they correlate and they you know you think well they're just smooth but you can you have these milestones in bikes and obviously the most latest milestone is obviously this, this thing that marcus doesn't if you're seeing younger riders then see it and then copy it you know you're, you're learning something there which, which mm. i find quite interesting i was because I, I was kind of interested in the question i couldn't really quite formulate a question out of this observational thought reading the book but uh, and again it's to do with this difference between riders versus drivers and in terms of behavior and approach the difference between clambering all over a motorbike which as you say alan you can very easily see whenever you watch a motorbike racer as opposed to being very, very tightly strapped into that kind of monocoque cocoon almost, and the sort of the different, yeah, just what different operating environments they are, but within, you know, track racing, let's say, environment. And, you know, just the differences just fascinate me in terms of, and again, you don't generally see a lot of interchangeability in terms of 
people going from one form to the other. Yeah, we do see it a I little think, bit. I think, um, I'm sorry, just to finish it, the, the reason car racing, car racing is easier in, from an experimental point of view because the driver is largely static and, and on a bike it's a lot difficult because the degrees of, of movement are so much so much greater um yeah so that that's kind of, but when, when you talk about transferability um it's, it's an interesting one you know because rossi started in carts which, you know he did karting before he did bikes um and then he does a bit of karting now so it's hard to know whether you, you you can't really like someone like rossi you see him going into cars and he's saying oh is he transferring to cars and you're trying to learn that he really actually started on four wheels <laughs> So it's always this. It's always this more layers of complexity when you, you really dive into it. You know, obviously yeah. Marcus is doing a bit of karting now because the injury risk um, of, of dirt bikes. So it's it's an interesting thing to observe. But it's always this layer of like once you start digging into it, you're like, well, you know, you try and understand this transferability of Rossi doing GT3, and you're like, well, he actually started on four wheels and he always did a bit of karting. So. It, you, you know, it's just interesting, you know. From, I guess from what I'm right. really pushing for is the second edition, which is focused on bike racing, guys. I mean, that's, that's what we want. <laughs> I did think about it. I have been thinking. I was thinking, can we can we change some of the passages to be more bike orientated? I guess the, the difficulty is with the car racing realm and the karting, it's, it's an easier thing to give examples of because it's something that, you know, I've driven and I can imagine and I can help paint the picture. But on a bike... Like it's it's just a different realm. I've done a bit. Of, I mean, I did I did a bit of dirt biking, and then all that made me do is watch Supercross in a totally different way because I was sitting there going, okay, I understand this is a bit harder than I even what they're doing. I can't even imagine. And when you can't imagine what they're having to put up with, it's hard to then write about it in an authentic way. But 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 still, fundamentally, there's there's so much, you know, because we're trying to write from a from an elementary point of view um there is so much just you can like 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 um you were saying jim you, you took so much out of it even though the, a lot of it talks about car stuff that you transfer to bikes you know there's a lot of that because of course bikes you have more degrees of, of rotation and, and all that kind of stuff but the fundamentals is still there and, I, and, and i'm glad that you you know you, you you picked up on that yeah i i have to make a confession to your listeners that i have actually never physically ridden a motorcycle so <laughs> when i am talking about motorcycles here i'm literally talking about a thing i do not know anything at all about however the rider of course that's a human being with a human brain who has developed certain specific skills and and the human brain and those skills i know a little bit about especially the the uh, if if you take the navigation guidance and control levels then, uh, then the navigation and guidance skills are such that they are probably uh, quite similar or transferable between different types of vehicles. You can't ignore uh, so, the Jim Surtees. Uh, uh, Jim Surtees. Uh, you can't Surtees ignore Surtees. Yeah, John Surtees. Sorry, my brain went a bit fried there. Yeah, you can't ignore that we have had a world champion who's done both. You know, one. that's, yeah. And yeah. transfer occurs when when two uh, tasks are skills. So so that, that's that's why there's very little transfer from chess to racing. It requires I don't know intense concentration and blocking out the uh, uh, th things that are not important for performance and so on. So those kinds of things possibly transfer from one area to another. But then 
the spatial arrangement of how, how to deal with, with risk forever, for example, uh, is, is not necessarily so, so, so much the same. So, so if, if you think of the transfer from bikes to cars or vice versa, uh, then, then I would hazard that, that the navigation level and, and guidance level skills are quite transferable from one uh, domain to, to another so that there's clear overlap in the domains there. And then the control level ability to move your body on the bike or, or learn, learn, learn what to do and, and, and feel, feel, feel the masses and, and the rotations and the weird things that rotating things do when you twist them and how that affects your movement. Those then need to be learned on the... Uh, on the uh, bike from from your other other, other uh, bike bicycling and athletic experience. There, there, there is of course like uh, like uh, timing and sense of balance and th things like like that and and, and uh, control of your body body overall. Those are those are very general con controllabilities and they they kind of probably then again transfer between uh, different fields so that that uh that uh and 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 like uh anecdotally some some people just can pick up uh how does this thing want to be operated they they get they just get feel for different kinds of vehicles and and sense what what it needs to get done and other other people uh don't where, where that comes from and and what's the uh, natural aptitude or the presence of the right kinds of chunks from past experience was the balance there that that we that we don't know i will say anecdotally and i'm you know, cautious to use that term i've always found bikers like very good car drivers to transfer to it very quickly um and i don't, I don't know I mean, it, you know it's just an interesting i've always felt like um kart racing is like it's like the the home for bikers who are fed up of getting injured <laughs> to a certain degree because <laughs> there's car racing is it, it lives in the realm between bikes and cars and you can tell on the car really at heart and um i always found riders i'm always confident putting a rider in a car i've, not, I've never had an issue with it i would suggest it's because we're very good at sliding we understand <laughs> that that's that, that feel right there's that intrinsic part it starts to slide there's not panic because we're used to it yeah, is, and there's a yeah, certain very, yeah reflexive idea that we put a certain input back in to correct it and i think, and they I think they, they, what, what really works is the the carts tend to be more body orientated there's a more a more natural feeling and um and also the the mechanics of the vehicle are essentially bikes are carts are just basically originally just bike engines on tubes of chassis you know so technologically speaking there's a lot of lot of crossover as well so yeah it's just yeah just i've always always found bikers just purely anecdotal to, to be able to get in a car and they always seem to do the job pretty comfortably you know never it's never i'm, I'm never getting that nervous feeling anyway I'll, I'll put it like that not it's not the same for people that do cars well gentlemen that's been sorry Otto. go ahead please yeah, I, I just have to say in closing that as a Finn, I, of course, am adamantly of the, of the opinion known to all Finnish people uh, for a fact that uh, the person who developed the knee-out technique was Jarno Saarinen That's and not Kenny Roberts. 
Yes. Because yes. <laughs> he had the, the cylinders were sideways on the Guzzi or BMW that he had, I think. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, gentlemen, that's been 90 minutes of your time. I can't thank you enough for um, taking the time and explaining the book to us. I think anybody who reads it will come away with this one important detail, whether it's a car racer or a bike racer, that these human beings are extremely articulate and extremely talented. Uh, and, you know, they're not just mind-numbed idiots who run around trying to destroy cars and bikes. They, there's a huge amount of thought and process that goes into to all of it. And uh, hopefully that everybody will go out after this and uh, get a copy of the book. It's The Science of the Racer's Brain by Dr. Otto Lappi and Alan Dove. It is on Amazon, and we'll try to get a link to it in the show notes. So any parting thoughts? Thanks for Rich? having us on. It's been, it's been great fun. Appreciate it very much, guys. Where, where yeah. can people follow you in terms of social media? Do you have um, some Twitter handles that you can share so people can follow? If you go to racersbrain.org, you can, you can find all the information about the book and uh, link, link, links to our uh, social me media and, and, uh, and, and stuff. So racersbrain.org also has a... Uh, little excerpt of of free content and and some bonus bonus materials that you can get, look at to get a feel for what what's what's inside. Uh, Sounds awesome. great. Looking forward to a sequel, gentlemen. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks for having us on. It's been no pressure. Been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, that was that was good fun. Yeah, that was fun. I had yeah, one, I one last thing table. I just wanted to ask. Yeah. yeah. Go on. Go on. I just wanted because I, I wasn't I was looking out for it. And I don't know if I missed it somewhere, but I was kind of curious about this notion. And I've heard people like Mansell talk about this before, that when he first jumped into an F1 car, which I think was a test at Ricard, uh, as we mentioned that track earlier on, for the first day, he just was hopeless. And then by the second day, his kind of visualisation of when driving the car, everything slowed down. And so he kind of talks about this kind of mental picture that things weren't scarily fast anymore. And he was able to start concentrating on driving the car and not worrying about the speed. And I, I guess that's a function of the, the way that the brain processes that information and, and experience builds up so that you can start to concentrate on other things. I, could I, what's interesting about that, and, and Otto can, can add on it, um, it's, always, it's always a precarious place to be to um, analyse things from what you're told by the individual especially with things like eye strategy. Um, mm. And Mansell's an interesting character. <laughs> you could say that. Yeah, yeah that's one word. It may be interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I'll let Otto expand on that. Yeah, because, yeah, he would know more than me. Yeah. Uh, so, roughly, it, 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 I, I feel that this, this like, uh, feeling that you have all the space and time you need to operate when you get into this whatever you call it flow or zone mm. uh, it, it has to come somehow from the from the way the predictive brain is able to like keep, keep ahead of the vehicle because you are using this fast uh, recall once you build up the uh, the uh, mem memory systems you can get, get stuff out of there very very quickly if you have a bit hazy uh, and there's new stuff coming in. There's uh, what's called prediction error because your brain can't really predict what's what, what is supposed to be happening in terms of feel or or vi visuals in the next split second. Uh, when when you have uh, this prediction error, 
occurring. That, that's when you feel that it's too fast. But then when your predictions improve, then you lose the prediction error. And then uh, you also the, lose this sense of rushedness. But we only go to this very briefly and hazily at the very end of the last mm. last chapter. So we're yes, kind yeah. of leaving it tantalizingly poised po- 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 for you to read, read, read maybe more in the in yeah. the next installment. Okay. Also, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I, I just, yeah. I do often think, you know, because I'm, I'm strictly a road rider. I don't race. I never have raced. And so I always marvel, you know, car drivers as well, of course, but particularly the bikes, you know, they race so fast and so close together, uh, and particularly the proximity thing. And, you know, I know if I, you know, I never, obviously never speed on the public road, but uh, on the odd occasion when I do, <laughs> You know, if you're going at quite a breakneck speed, you know, all, all of my senses are occupied just trying to see where I'm going. You, you know, and the thought of having somebody a couple of inches from me and then overtaking them, you know, precisely and not crashing is just, it's a marvel. That, it's, it's like a relativity thing because they're yeah. not moving fast relative to each other. Tr- yeah, okay. Yeah. 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 So it, it kind of, it is, it's amazing that they're combining these things. Um, but the roads are scarier because often, the closing speeds and the <laughs> predictabilities, you know, because it gives in essence, if you're riding and you're racing, it's the other, what the other rider's doing is, is relatively predictable. Um, so, so it's as it's, it's amazing as it looks. Um, I can only talk from a karting perspective, really. That's where my experience lies. And I was literally racing yesterday, you know, when you're on someone's bumper and, and that kind of stuff, you're, it is it's weird it, it, you can be on this tightest track because you're sort of everything's you're they're not really doing much different to you you know so it, it kind of yeah it feels weirdly comfortable um jim can speak it because he's a racer. It gets scary if they break too early <laughs> he's right he's, he's very right uh, because that's a, you can predict what the other person will do especially with bikes because you can see the rider so you can mm-hmm. see where he's how he's learned how his body is positioned for the turn that's coming up and you get a predictability of what he's going to do, especially let's face it. A group of racers are like a little family. You travel around together, cartings that way. I know you get to mm-hmm. learn people's nuance. So it really doesn't become that different. It just seems oddly natural. You know, it always just, becomes what's interesting. Cause you, um, the, the, the idea that like chess is used as a, and then sort of the, the trunking theory of chess is like you, you use it as the basis to talk about trunking theory in, in, in race driving. But the, the, you always go back to this way of it is like a bit of a chess game, really, when you're when you're racing. Um, it becomes a strategy. And it, it, that's that's kind of that's where it's kind of gets quite interesting just from that perspective. But yeah, on, on the thing about riding close and everything. Yeah, it's, it, I, I can only speak from my experience, but it's weirdly if, 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 if they're, they're predictable most of the time, unless, you know. This is Barsha, and he comes for a move <laughs> on the inside. Uh, but yeah, um, but that's an experience thing again, I, I, mm. I guess, isn't it? Building up that knowledge of who your competitors are yeah. and working yes. in that operating zone. Yeah, and and also also it's kind of a layer of experience on top of just being able to handle uh, the circuit, like the the stationary physical things. So so al- although it's the size of the racer's brain. If you note, we don't really talk about racing yet at all. We are talking talk largely about race driving or mm-hmm. riding, just just handling handling the uh, physical environment and, and not 
the uh, cooperation or or uh, adversary behaviors of of uh, other uh, other yeah. competitors on the track what's what's interesting is like um because eye strategy is kind of the foundation of one of the roots of trying to understand what's going on and where where I got in touch with Otto and kind of not a lot's really known about it in a, in a sense from a racing scenario because we often talk about uh, eye strategy and but you, you can stick you can have eye strategy but then you've got five bikes ahead of you you know mm. what's the strategy then you know those are the kind of experiments I'd, I'd love to see particularly like um because we, we always go to the end point so what's the eye strategy of a good rider on a hot lap i like what's the eye strategy of a good rider on their first lap what's the eye strategy if you've got 10 bikes in front of you all fanning across in a moto three moto three race you know it adds this these layers of dimensions experimental part i don't we mentioned it already but the, the book is, is partially written to inspire scientists to venture into this realm yeah from an experimental perspective because those questions are there you know and they're still left unanswered and we've tried our best to answer some of the fundamental ones but on top of that it's like trying to build a foundation and when you start thinking about it it is is quite exciting yeah i i have one more anecdote which i i need to share just to uh to uh to uh kind of convince you of my so sorry uh bike racing enthusiasm <laughs> credentials so 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 uh, yeah I, i'm only going to be seeing my first uh, motorcycle race this year when we have the uh, gp oh, Gimiring. Gimiring. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so 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 I, i don't know whether i will 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 be wearing this uh, <laughs> well, there, there, there it not, is there you but, go But uh, this, this one, uh, so you, you can see it's uh, Valentino Rossi on the Repsol Honda. And the story yeah. behind, behind this shirt is that when I started do, doing my PhD, uh, that year I was on holiday in Italy and I saw this, uh, this shirt there on the, on, the, uh, uh, on, on the stands. And of course, on the back of it, it, it says the doctor... So that's the reason I bought this shirt, so that when I get my PhD at the post-PhD party, uh, which is a fancy, fancy dress tailcoat party here in Finland, but then at the end of the uh, end of the evening, I will wear this this uh, shirt that says "the doctor" on top of my tailcoat, and that's what I did. Good man. Good man. Well, there'll be quite a few forty-six uh, t-shirts and hoodies and so on at the Kimi Ring. I'm very sure. The thing is, I've got 46 tattooed on my back, and I keep, oh, no. I'm the only person with a 46 tattoo. And I'm like, no, it's not about Rossi. That's my race number. Really? <laughs> my race number. And I, because he's got it. it was, oh, it's a Rossi. You're a Rossi fan. I'm like, yeah, but it's my race number. I got it for me. <laughs> <laughs> that's only one. Yeah, so it's quite excellent. Fun. I'm going to send you a link to uh, the final corner of the World Supersport Race at Aragon a few weeks ago because mm. a young guy called Lorenzo Baldazzari, who's just moved over to Uh, the superbike paddock from GPs pulled off the most amazing um, Mark Marquezzi type save. Oh, I've seen this. Yeah, I've, I've lost It's touch. I've unreal. lost touch a little bit with, with superbikes. I'll send them um, what so I need to get. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. Um, it's a shame. I think um, there's a weird thing that's happened, I guess, in, in motorsport. Where it's all centralizing. You know, it's like F1 is like just all encompassing. And Moto obviously, when MotoGP went four stroke, it was sort of 
it's going to always be hard for superbikes to maintain its identity, I guess, even though it's mm. supposed to be road bikes and prototypes in MotoGP. But philosophically speaking, there wasn't such a difference, you know, so it's harder to keep touch with superbikes. So I need, I need to start getting back into that. Yeah, well, particularly this and season and last and season has been really, really good in superbikes. So because Johnny Ray's got some competition on his hands now, so it's upped uh, the competition level massively the last year or so. Yeah, it would be. Yeah, it's just it's interesting. I always follow it. I'm I'm more interested in the sort of the. I'm I'm I'm, I'm guessing if I just sort of if we ended the podcast yet. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but, no, sorry. Still, still recording. Two hours of talking about the politics. I I can't do two hours, guys. That's sorry. Yeah, you sorry, just I'm need joking. to edit the closing remarks to, to the end. <laughs> we'll we'll have to move it around. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah sorry, but uh, yeah, I'm just yeah, I just it was, I've always found it quite fascinating. You know, the moving to four strokes and then Rossi leaving is that going to make a big difference to the marketing? Because I think. You know, I think I think MotoGP got a bit lazy with it all, really. Um, yeah. Especially now, F1 is accelerating. I know David Emmett was commenting on it, um, and, they, and they always say uh, we need our own drive to survive. And I always think that's a bit of a cliche. It shows a lack of ideas. You need to think bigger than that. Um, you know, and I, I actually I think Supercross is doing a great job because you've got that mix of like Barsha, Bam Bam TV. It's really cool. You've got AJ Catanzaro doing his thing, which is this weird blend of racing and supercross, but he's also doing his... It, it, there's these narratives that are there that I think um, is they're really important to bike racing. I think people, if you lose narratives, you're, you're in big trouble. And um, MotoGP at the moment, I, I struggle to, to grab onto the narratives and I'm just hoping that they can really pull back from the Rossi era, you know, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah. dropped out you know it's a connection thing yeah. but anyway yeah i just sort of dive that in because i just I had to get something out like it's like just general family fan sort of fan fanboy stuff so um yeah i needed to get out of my system yeah it's great i don't know what auto seems to have dropped out i think these connections just died yeah no worries no worries but yeah it's, it's great great to great to be on guys i really appreciate it um i don't uh, just a couple of minutes um Jim, do you met you? Did you do Ride On Two? What do you mean, Ride On Two? The the it was a website. I don't know. Oh, that was Hot Jim. Monkey. That was that was not the you. other. That was the other. Um, Hot Monkey. Yeah, that was Jules Chisek. So Motopod um, as a show has been around since I started listening to it back in like two thousand three, somewhere around yeah. there. and it's been through different guys, different hosts as it's come along and so rich and i are just now the latest iteration i'm sure i was we were on it years ago i have to we have we'll have to go back we'll have to go back it was a really really long time it was me and my sister i think think was it jim jim race jim Jim race might have been it was a long time ago because this podcast otto i was was saying this podcast has been around for ages it's one of the oldest podcasts out there and it's like (laughs) it's really cool to be on there you know it's cool for us to to come on and yeah it's um Yeah, I just remember it's, it's, it's great that also that you, you, you guys. I mean, uh, coming from a from a motorcycle background, which is really unfamiliar territory for us, and part of the reason, as we said, for not including so many stories because we are not so versed in the in, in it. But we we were kind of uh, hoping or confident confident that uh, that. Uh, a lot of the things that we write about, they do transfer, and 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 pe- people also, yeah. also on two two wheels can find find uh, f- f- find where those properties of the driver slash rider actually yeah. lock onto their experience. 
Yep. Yeah. Definitely. Just a quick question, guys. Is it okay if we use some of your comments about the book in some of our blurbs or anything like that? Um, Get right ahead. Absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's really good for us to hear that you enjoyed the book and you, you got something out of it. Yeah. And uh, I did I know on the question about um percentages of the brain, uh, Jim, I didn't want to sound too disagreeable. Like I no, I, I, I disagreeable. I'm not a scientist. I'm just an yeah. engineer that yeah. races bikes and I'm I'm, I'm not a scientist. I'm just there. an engineer that races bikes. I mean, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's not that the that the uh, metaphor is wrong. Like I said, right. uh, Keith Code makes a great use of it, and and I I, I think that the way he describes uh, use of vision and attention is 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 spot on. And there is exactly it, it's like that, that that's where it's within the the kind of uh, domain of application. And, and and there it works. But then then if you try to transfer it uh, to this other question, that's where it starts to break up, and the metaphor uh, start starts to break up at the, at the seams, and and you can get into trouble. Yeah, yeah. If there's anything we can do to help you guys promote the book, I think Rich and I would be more than willing to to help in some capacity. I don't know what what we could really do. I mean, but you know, oh, this is this is more than enough. It's fantastic to get the opportunity to come on. You know, it, it means a lot to us. You know, to come on to, for your time, it's two hours and you've got to edit yeah. it and all that. It's, it's a lot of hard yeah. work, trust me. I've done and you've even, even read it, so this is... This <laughs> yeah, read the book, it's like we don't even get feedback, yeah. you know, yeah. from people that read the book because it's such a... It's not an easy read, so it's not easy for people to read it and go, I loved it, you know, I'll read it. It's like to really absorb it and to, to get it, we appreciate that yeah. massively. And, yeah, you've got yeah, to we can see you. <laughs> you guys did yeah. an awesome job. Yeah. You really did. I mean... I don't know if I just got some of it because of prior racing experience, but it was well laid out, articulated. And if you thought about it for a second, you understood where you guys were going. So I, I give you full That's marks. For, I always feel bikers, bikers. I always, it's, it, I always put bikers at the top of the mountain for me. So it's, I always feel like it's a, it's a group of individuals that seem to have a, an understanding that transcends just the, the mere act of riding. And they, the, the, that's why there seems to be so much more literature out there. And the, the, the market of bikers, I, I'm guessing purely hypothetically, would probably be more comfortable reading the book than the, the actual car market. Because um, I think you inherently understand the. I, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but you see Tomac, Anderson, or, or Marquez good riders in bikes go yeah i can't do that and their top top riders look at them and go i can't do that they're like the difference between really good and good is big i mean car racing it's like really small and it's like everyone that races a car thinks they're the best but no dirt bike rider thinks they're going to get anywhere near tomac because they just go even like the, the guys that are getting in the qualifying for the main are happy and they're five yeah. seconds off the pace you know so there's an inherent understanding of high level performance that's more intrinsic to bikers. Like you, you, they're always learning. There's always something new to learn. There's a, the schools, the coaching practices. It seems to be more defined. So it's I, I always felt like the, the book in the back of my mind is though it's car based and that's where we, we're kind of fundamentally based. I've always felt the bike market is a market that's more comfortable with it. If that makes sense, I hope that makes sense. I think sense. most people that ride bikes, certainly on the road, fancy themselves as racers, whereas the majority of people that own a car 
I have a car because I need one just to get from A to B, yeah. you know. So I think there's a, there's a little bit more of a kind of a utility of a car. Yeah, bike. Is yeah, there's be... more of a buy-in with bikes, I think, and and you know that that and and it's obviously it's a more visceral experience, even if you're just pottering along on the road. You, I mean, you're still moving around on the bike. It's more relatable. Very, and you've got a stronger culture. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. definitely. I'm the culture club. is yeah, so strong. You know, it's such a different realm. I'd, I can talk about that in a different realm if you're talking about promotion of things. Uh, culture reminds reminds me one one thing that would be uh, really helpful because you guys uh, go to races, you meet people. I mean, re- reaching b- besides your listeners, which is fantastic. If we ship you a bunch of books, you can just give them around to some some people you think might be interested so so we we like this have a look the the, the authors really enjoyed being on motorpod and and send, send these to dish out so so have a look at this if people mention it favorably on some media then so so then that that's of course all, all visibility for yeah. us uh, yeah. but but uh, that like just just getting getting the product out there for for people to see so we can ship you a bunch and then you can just hand them to somebody you, you think would uh, respond fa- favorably and 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 just like the book so that we, we're interested in getting the books to people who would like to read it that's why we ultimately yeah. wrote it okay yeah we can do that I, yeah. I could think of a couple people right now that i i'd hand a copy to quite honestly yeah yeah and i'm i mean i'm going to quite a few bsb races this year and i've become quite sort of pally with you know a couple of the guys that commentate on eurosport now so you know and they're quite active on social media and stuff so i'm sure we could get them to um to do some shout outs as well so and i'd actually quite like to come back for a follow-up call with you guys because i mean one of the things that i've mentioned to jim in the past and it doesn't directly relate exactly to the to the content specific content of the book but it is still to do with the brain in terms of its reception to you know sensations and so on and that's this idea not idea this fact that motorcycle certainly top level motorcycle races appear to be very extreme in the way that they can manage injuries and pain and is there something behind that you know this idea of hyposensitivity and so on um I'm an advocate and a believer on the fact, I mean, we're all on the sort of autistic spectrum. It's just a question of whereabouts on the line are we? Uh, My eldest daughter is Asperger's, and and so she's quite hypersensitive to things. But on the other end of the scale, you can be really kind of turned off to sensations. And I wonder whether there are certain traits like that, that kind of, a bit like we were talking about experts, you know, you know more and more about less and less. And it's this, this sort of filtering process that mean that the people at the very, very top are kind of really extreme examples of a thing or a combination of things. And I, I, I'm fascinated about this idea. I mean, last weekend, for example, in Hareth, the guy who finished second in the Motor 2 race, six days previously, had a radial fracture of his arm and a broken finger. And, and so he races with that injury and finishes subject. second. It's a tricky subject. Yeah, it's an interesting because, subject. Because I, I t- not to go too off piste, I always keep an eye on the substances that are available yeah. to them. That yes, always yes. something that is I can't talk about as an expert, but someone who's been involved in motorsport and the individuals that are in it aren't bothered by ethics. No, <laughs> and I always, I always wondered. I always wondered how because they always say hyperbolic chambers, and I'm like, I'm 
hyperbolic chambers are good. I don't know if they're that good. Like, it, I've always got something in the back of my mind where I'm always thinking, I don't, I'm not sitting here making a judgment. I have to say that very clearly. But there's an element to that that's not free from, I don't believe it's free from human interference. No, absolutely. Um, and, and Dr. Costa yeah. in, in MotoGP was kind of almost infamous in terms of, you know, the Hippocratic Oath and not putting people in harm's way. I think, you know, I think there's a, I think there's a big, there's a big, there's a big story that, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time because I can go on a, you got to understand, I, I ran a cart in media thing. So I'm not just a coach. I, I do a lot of things. So I always think about these things. There's a lot of stories that do not get exposed in motorsport because the motorsport media can't function without the support of the organisers. Mm-hmm. And if you started to dip your toe into understanding what's really going on on a lot of aspects, you can find your access uh, removed very quickly. So it's a very precarious subject to talk about, particularly with... I, I do know I do know people would try to... Particularly... Um, there's always controversy about ADHD medication that filters in. I'm not an expert on it. I have to make this clear. I know James Stewart got suspension because I don't know if it was Ritalin or something along those lines that he was caught with. So there's a, there's a thing there that's always in the back of my mind going, I know how competitive these people are. Now, what they're doing to try and win, you don't know what they're doing. You know, So it's very difficult to come at it from an analytical point of view because mm. it's hard to know what's really going on. And I'm sympathised with people that do want to expose things, but they can't because their jobs and their careers are at stake. Um, and you know, obviously with OTT over the top media now, the, the sport doesn't need independent media like it used to, because it just, just jumps over that. And they, they're, they're, you know, they're selling their own streams, they're selling this and that. They don't need the journalists. They can sack them off, really. Yeah. I think, I, to me, I think podcasts like this are so important for the sport and culture, because I think that the... OTT media is devoid of culture. It's a bit bland, you know? So I think podcasts like this are really important, but it's mightily difficult to expose and investigate things when they're, when your, your, your question you ask, you're asking about that. I can't help but go, there's a, there's a story there that mm-hmm. is, is not as simple as it at first appears. And well, that's my honest. belief. That's my belief. I can't say for certain, but I've always, my I just get suspicious with these injury recovery rates and you, you look at athletics and I go mm, we have to be a little bit careful with how we approach this but I, I know I'm diverting off them I guess we're at the end of the podcast and all that and this is yeah, not going no. in. yeah this is not going I have to say that um, well, we don't have any bridges to burn Jim we don't <laughs> no. I, 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 the thing is the problem is I have nothing to lose and the problem is when I when I'm in that I'm in that mode, I can completely decimate everything because I, I, I'm uh, very, uh, I get very irate about certain things, and One I just think in that arena, there's there's a story that's not, and, and the risks that the ride, the, the problem that you have is it's like a bit of a thing that it's like they, it's a scab they can't pick because as soon as you pick it, you're going to expose all of the safety breaches, and then the end result is is motorbike racing at all a good thing to do because as soon as you say we're taking risks with the medical interventions well should we be allowing riders to ride after they've knocked their head should we be allowing them to ride on certain circuits and then it becomes like bike racing is in a a much more precarious position than it may uh, realize and that kind of speaks to it because the medical things that are going on i don't know what's going on but 
I've always been a bit suspicious by the well, concussion rates. Concussion protocols are right in the spotlight in MotoGP at the moment. And, you know, we must be honest about this. And, you know, it's done a, a really shit job of managing that whole issue forever. Uh, the it's is only the, just yeah. in the last few weeks that they've actually started to do things that are a little bit more sensible. The problem you've got, and this is what they, they're, they're forced into doing it, they have to do it. But you look at the sport as a whole and you, you ask questions, what is it safe to have kids racing motocross bikes? Because they're taking just probably more risks than a lot of MotoGP riders. Mm. You know, and it, 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 it's one of those things that I think about a lot because I'm, you know, I saw a kid yesterday have a big crash and he landed in a pond, you know, and it's, it's always one of these things that you're asking yourself, you know, we, we look at the very top of the sport and we're biased to the top of the sport. We don't actually really look at everything else and the implications of certain things because, you know, you may, you have to care for these elite riders, but then you think, well, look at that club racing, you know, the kids that are racing now, they can go and start at eight, do mini bikes, but they're, they're racing soon on one, two, fives and stuff around small circuits. And they're taking just as many risks as the, the big boys in, in certain, certain ways. So it's a, it's a big question, but, you know, I can go on about it for a long time. Okay, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. It was a rich and I had a fabulous time with Otto and um, Alan. Great guys. So hopefully you got a lot out of it too. Before we get out of here, I know rich, you want to talk about the Northwest 200 real quick and we're TT week is almost upon us as well. So fill us in on that. Yeah. I just want, I just wanted to make a quick kind of passing uh, mention of the Northwest 200 first time it's been run for a couple of years because of covid uh happened so we were recording this what's the date jim it's the 20 wednesday the 25th yeah so it happened a couple of weekends ago uh i wanted to mention it because it's a real road race so it's a dangerous event i'm happy to report that there are a few spills and thrills but everybody made it through the weekend or, or the week i should say uh safe and sound i won't slavishly go through all of the results but uh, Jerry McWilliams, Alistair Seeley, Glenn Irwin, you know, these guys were scooping up a lot of airwaves in terms of wins and outstanding performances. And I must correct myself from, my, I think, when I did my little solo slow sh uh, show slot, which was the week before the Northwest 200 happened, I mistakenly said that they don't ride in the rain, <laughs> which is the case at the TT. But they most certainly do ride in the rain at the Northwest 200 because it was sopping wet on the Thursday night races. So, I mean, those guys are unbelievably brave to do what they do. So, yeah, just glad that, you know, the, the event itself was a massive, massively well attended, which is great in terms of its financial viability. Haven't been away for a couple of years. They clearly had used that time very wisely in terms of the coverage and all of the infrastructure and organisation around the event. So, Top marks to the guys and girls involved in all of the organisational side. And yeah, brilliant with all the races, boys and girls again. You got around safe and sound. So yeah, just wanted to give it a quick shout out. And that obviously leads into the Isle of Man TT, which will be starting off in terms of the practice week from next Monday. And then the following week will be race week. And uh, again, just to give it a quick mention, the TT Plus, I think it's called, is a £15 subscription for the entire live streaming of the all of the races, which, you know, 15 quid, what's that, $20, Jim, round figures? Uh, probably something close to that, probably 22 23 something. Yeah, 17 or 18 euros. I mean, for a whole week of live stream, you know, event coverage, I don't think, you know, there are many better deals on the table than that just at the moment. So, again, that's something I'll be subscribing to, and I would encourage, again, all of the listeners who probably already know about this, but uh, if you don't, go and subscribe, because uh, if you've got any interesting bike racing and i'm sure the tt is fairly high up the list of things you want to watch 
Agreed. I think that does it, Rich. Did we cover everything we wanted to in this one? Because it's it's a yeah. long show. <laughs> this one's a it's long a long show, show particularly with the interview. We've got Mijello, obviously, to look forward to this weekend coming. Retirement of Rossi's number. If anybody deserved it, I think Rossi truly did. Actually, Jim, I wanted to ask you about this. This was one little thing, actually, I had. You've just prompted me to uh, as a reminder. Are you in favour of the retirement of race numbers? No. No. Good. Because I just, I mean, eventually... It's kind of like records, isn't it? Sooner or later, every conceivable combination of melodies and tunes and notes is going to have been thought up. Well, the same applies to race numbers. I mean, you'll get to the stage where everybody has to run like a three-digit number. Yeah. And, I, you know, I just think it's a bit senseless, really. I don't get it. I, I just And even in this particular case, even Rossi himself has said he didn't particularly want the number to be retired. I know, which I thought was really odd. But, I mean, of all the people that they picked... For number, I think the only number prior to this one that I can think of that was retired recently was Nikki's 69, and that was done. And now, oh, Ross, 30, 34, Schwantz's Schwantz's, name, well, uh, I think Schwantz's was before Nikki's. I was, I was trying, yes. to, I was trying to go, yeah, backwards in time. I guess I should have said that. I think, oh, I think Simoncelli's got done. It's Simoncelli's, I think, was done as well, somewhere in there. And it's getting to be, yeah. oh, how do I put it? It's kind of like voting people into into the rock and roll hall of fame he's like okay you stop and you go like what why are these people here like <laughs> you guys had one two two songs that you know from my perspective i liked it's, it's, it's you know not I, I so yeah i'm not into the retirement of the numbers i think you i think it would be better served to have you know rossi just be a moto gp legend and ambassador for life of the sport and go from there yeah you know his the thing is that i think his brand is synonymous and i think out of respect i think a lot of people wouldn't run a 46 on their bike just because that number is synonymous with rossi again i also think that this is a bit weird because back in the old 500 days you got a number based on where you were in the points (laughs) you had a number one if you finished second in the points you were number two number three four etc etc i think the top 10 were that way and then i think it was pick your number or whatever that was there i'm also i'm old school i'm the old school dirt track guy right so though i love the way dirt track did their numbers you had your number one your champion from last year anybody who had a single digit number was a former champion so you can instantly look at the grid and say oh here's four prior champions of the series then you had numbers without a letter were guys who were not a rookie anymore who had graduated to the professional level and filled it out. And if once you, you know, like some people were synonymous with numbers because of, you know, what they had from their time there, Ricky Graham was synonymous with the number three from his time. Um, Chris Carr was synonymous with the number four. Scotty Parker was synonymous with the 11, et cetera, stuff like that. So yeah, I don't, no, retiring numbers just doesn't work for me. Mm, no, I think it's a bit of a folly. But again, we've been talking about all sorts of interesting things this evening. So again, it would be interesting to see what uh, yeah. what, what the listeners think. So let us know. All right. So there it is, guys. Anything you need to talk to us about the show, you can do that by writing into us at motopod at motopodcast.com. Whether it's about retirement of numbers, uh, the grid and how we got it wrong, or any other motorcycling thing you want to talk about, we can't wait to hear about it. You have Magello coming this weekend. You have the TT weeks starting on that Monday. Hopefully everybody there will ride safe. I want you all to ride safe. 
and cheers. Cheers, everyone.